So this is a lecture around critical race theory, but my job today is to be able to show to you why it is that critical race theory is an analysis that can be used for almost any problem that we have in law. That in actuality, although we're talking about race and whether race matters or not, I think that there, is, uh, there are things that are analogous to how you look at critical race theory, how you actually interpret the law, how the law is actually looked at in order for you to understand how it is that the law can be used as a tool in order for you to further issues, problems, questions, queries for whatever topic it is that you're going to be dealing with. So I've decided to deal with, especially in Black History Month, the fact that we're dealing with race. So of course the first question that's asked is does race matter? Why this becomes important is because I think that it impacts on everything that deals with individuals that are racialized. That being either sentencing, investigations, the trial fairness, whether or not you look at bail, whether you get bail or you do not get bail, all of those things I think will actually bear witness depending on the kind of person that you have in front of you. So I think that the lens is important in order for you to determine how it is that you set the, the case or the matter forward. But my ultimate uh, submission to you all would be that in order for you to be good litigators, you have to be willing to move the bounds of the law that you have to be able to see when I ask you about intuition, when I ask you about uh, you know, whether or not you should be standing up to object to something, it's because I think that part of it is your intuition. And sometimes law school hammers out of you that your intuition is right. And I'm trying to hammer back into you that, ham that your intuition is actually correct most times. And if it's wrong, somebody will tell you. So why do I have this frame of reference? I will tell you why as we're going through. Uh, but it's because I had to trust my intuition a lot of the times. And I trusted my intuition if I felt like something was wrong, if I felt like something just didn't make sense, especially where race was concerned. So when I became a lawyer, most black people wouldn't go to a black lawyer, which seems unusual, perhaps or even counterintuitive. You would think that, well, if you were a black lawyer, someone would actually trust you more since you're all going to be in court at the same time. Not the case. So I would have been, you know, the West Indies, West Indies has this phrase, they call it the wash belly. And the wash belly is the baby that's born last, the one that you didn't expect, the one that sort of came and everyone was like, oh my goodness, I had no idea that you were actually in there. So I would have been the wash belly in terms of criminal lawyers. So when I came in, there were lawyers that were sort of three or five years my senior, and I was coming in sort of as a junior. And uh, so... I saw things that they had seen. Uh, I was a court worker, which was this program that they had for uh, black accused. It was a pilot project through the African Canadian Legal Clinic. And you'll see why that clinic became so important as years go on. Um, and so I came in contact with a lot of lawyers. And so what I would see is that I would see that I would be talking to inmates inside of the cells, and I would be recommending them to lawyers. And they would say, well, is that lawyer black? And I would say, well, yeah, actually, they are black, thinking that's a good thing. They're like, well, we don't want a black lawyer. Because I'm going to be black, you're going to be black, the judge is going to be white, the crown is going to be white, and we're the only ones that seem to have done anything wrong. So they didn't want to be associated with a black lawyer just in case that that prejudice sort of um, filtered off on them. So as I start now into this legal career, I'm realizing that black people just don't want to go to black people. Um, 
But when we talk about intuition, there's a case that I had, and I'm saying these things to lead you into why it is that I think race is important. And so there was a case that I had which was an importing. And this is very early. This is like one of maybe, maybe the second jury trial that I would have had. And the person was coming in from Jamaica. And when they were coming in from Jamaica, they uh, were found with drugs inside of their bag, inside of a, a, a false bottom, inside of a suitcase. And so that person came to me. And after they came to me and we were talking for a while, um, I've been to Jamaica several times. And I actually had a friend who went to Jamaica. And he and I were talking after I got this case. And he said, yeah, when he came back, now remember, he's, he's about six foot five. He is a, he's a principal. He was a principal at a school, university educated. He was building a house for his mom. And uh, so he's coming in. And I'm telling him I have this case. And then he just came back from seeing his mom. He comes in from Jamaica. I said, OK, great. Uh, and then he says to me, um, so I said, how did the ship go? He said, it was good. So, you know, what happened, blah, blah, blah. He's telling me. And then he says, uh, yeah, so I came in, and then they strip searched me. And then after I strip searched, I got my bags. And then after I got my bags, and I was gone. And my mind was like, what? They strip searched you? He said, yeah, yeah, they strip searched me. He said, they strip searched me all the time. I said, they strip search you all the time? He said, yeah, all the time. I get it. They strip search me, and then I go on. I get my bags, and then I leave. So I couldn't believe it. But now I just got in this case, and I knew that for those persons that were racialized, they were actually searched a lot more. We were always under that understanding. So my intuition told me to go back to the airport, and so I decided to do a survey. And so I did a survey of a flight called 982, which is the flight that comes in from Jamaica. And the flight comes in every day. There's two flights. And so I asked now students from Osgood to go to the airport. I had a questionnaire that had been started by a professor at U of T named Scott Wortley. I put the questions together. Scott Wortley was a, a statistician and become very renowned now in, in the area of race. And uh, we did this survey. And what would happen is you would see the flight 982 would land. And after the flight lands, about, say, 15 minutes after, people start coming out. And they're all white people. They've got like big bags and small bags. They've got um, golf clubs. They have like Louis Vuitton bags. And they're all coming out, just regular. And then about 40 minutes or 45 minutes later is the first black person. Then a trickling of black people now in this first white individuals. And then eventually, like maybe an hour and a half later, then there's more black people that are coming off. So they would ask the question, were you strip searched? Were your bags searched? Blah, blah, blah. Then I took those stats. I had them um, done by Scott Wortley, who now was a statistician. And then I used those in the case. Now, the case eventually gets withdrawn because of this information. I'm also saying that because I think that sometimes race is used as like a bird course. Like to say, oh, it's, it's not that important. But I'm saying that you can use a statistical analysis to be able to understand whether or not race is important, is viable, or not. But the first thing that you have to do is to be able to understand context. So say it ain't so. Here we have 
Monday the 3rd of November, there was always this understanding that slavery never happened in Canada. I don't believe that this generation of, of persons actually believe that not to be the case. So this is one to let you know, as early as 1760, you have slaves being sold, and this is in Halifax. And if you go further, you see gentlemen, going to England has for sale a Negro wench uh, when her child, uh, about 26 years of age, who understands thoroughly every kind of housework particularly. So clear, these are individuals that are on the block. This is in Quebec, 1785. So we have a, a viable slave trade that is happening here. These are going to be important for you to understand context. Context should be always understood whenever you're doing any case. If you don't understand the context, you won't be able to argue or litigate it as well as you'd like. So context becomes important. I'm simply using race as an example of how it is that you should do every case. But I'm doing it under the guise of critical race theory. So, I'm applying for asylum. This, I don't know how I found this, but it makes me laugh every time. I'm applying for asylum on the grounds of racism. Granted, you're racist enough for us. What this does for me is it understands to me that there is a system that these persons are actually to be able to understand. The person in the seat is the one that's asking for it, but they have no understanding of what it is. Racism is one of those things. Prejudice can be those things that are looked at. It can be embraced or believed by many, but many times it's not embraced or understood by enough. So even those persons that are decision makers do not necessarily understand race. I say this as I've said to you before. There are times when you're in front of a judge and the judge doesn't understand what you're arguing. So never think that just because the judge is sitting up there that they have a better understanding of what you're litigating than you do. As litigators, you should know every nook and cranny of everything that you're going to be investigating, everything that you're going to be litigating, everything you're going to be looking at. And many times, the persons that are making the decisions don't have an understanding as well. So in this, you can see that there is a lack of critical race theory, that the understanding of race where this is concerned is just not there. Equal justice. And look how they do this. You have two individuals dressed exactly the same. There are stats that would suggest that the only indicator that usually is different or makes the difference is race. You have two individuals here look the same, uh, I should say in terms of height, what they're wearing, things of that sort, but you have only one of them asking about a permit. So keeping in mind that you need to have a permit in order to have the sign. So let's take for, for a moment the idea that if you have a permit, you can hold the sign. But it is interesting who the investigators go to first to see whether or not the law has been broken. Again, you have to understand that the context of this means that there is a, you know, there's a lack of what is called self-determination in the black community. So what happens is as a result of being slaves for such a long time, as a result of being persons that were under the thumb of other individuals, many times what is believed is that the black individuals do not have an understanding of what it is that they're facing, or what it is the law is, or what it is that they have to deal with. Or they're over-surveilled. So many years ago, when again, I was litigating, and as this class knows, that's uh, one of the ways that I'm able to at least articulate to you what it is that I've seen. Uh, I was in front of this onerous, ornery judge. I can't see his name because now I realize that we're on a podcast. And so if I said his name, he would know eventually. But he's a terrible judge absolutely terrible. He's not nice. 
He's never been nice. He doesn't pretend to be nice. He's not the kind of judge that's like, oh, and how's your day? He doesn't do that, doesn't say good morning. He's very gruff. So I'm in his, in his, class, in his uh, court, and I'm doing a trafficking case. And so I was asking now in this trafficking case if the officer has ever done a surveillance in Rosedale. Now, this was at uh, a place, uh, Lansdowne and Bloor, which is in the heart of Toronto. And so I, for those who are not from Toronto, that's where it is. So the police officer's there. The officers, according to the testimony, say that they see my client coming up to another person, and they just do this. And then the other person walks away, and the officer then finds uh, my client running, arrests him, and then uh, takes him to the ground, and eventually effects an arrest. So... I say to the officer, and the officer says, yeah, we were doing surveillance. We've been there for many days. And because we were there for many days, we saw many hand-to-hand transactions. And this is one of the ones that we saw. So I say to him, have you ever done uh, surveillance in the bridal path? And he looks at me like this weird, like, really? So for those, again, who are not from Toronto, so the bridal path is a very sort of highfalutin area with multi-million dollar homes, like, as in starting at 10 million, let's say. So the officer looks at me like, no, we haven't. I ask the other officer, have you done any sort of investigations in Rosedale? No, we haven't. Lawrence Park? No, we haven't. So I'm asking every officer this question. Every time an officer comes up, I ask him, have you ever been a part of a surveillance in this area? Have you ever talked to anyone in this area? Have you ever done any of this in this area? And uh, everyone says no. So the prelim is done, and my client gets committed, especially since it was a prelim. And so as I'm packing up, this judge, which I almost said his name, I realize, uh, says to me, Mr. McLeod, and it's not like he's saying it smiling. He didn't even say it as nice as I just said it. He's like, uh, why do you keep asking these police about whether or not they've searched Rosedale or all of these other areas? Why would you ask that? It's not even in the disclosure. You don't need to know all of that. And I say, well, I'm, I'm asking these questions because I want to be able to bring a charter argument. And again, I say this to say that the analysis that you use in critical race is an analysis that you should be able to use in any case that you do as long as you can understand context first. So I say to him, if I was in Rosedale and I was that drug dealer, I could drive to Rosedale with the drop top open on my car, listening to the hottest hip hop song known to man with my radio on like one million. I could drive up to the house of my uh, particular client that I'm gonna have. I could come out of my car. I could meet my client on the lawn. I could do my drug transaction by giving him the drugs there, he just handing it over like this. And he could give me wads of cash. I could have all of that cash in my hand. He could have all the drugs in his hand and my music still going. And then I could walk back to my car. And as I walk back to my car, I could yell at the guy and say, yo, I'll call you again in a week. I'll be right back here. And he could say, thanks a lot for the crack cocaine. And I would say, you know what? No problem for the crack cocaine. And then I could get back into my car with the rim still spinning and spinning and spinning. And then I could give that and I could drive off. And nobody would know. But if I'm at Bloor and Lansdowne, I just have to do this. And then I get arrested. So it is that where the police surveil is sometimes the best place for them to find. But now the critical race part of this would be this. You recognize or should recognize that in treatment at CAMH, 
that the uh, percentage of individuals that are white that are taking um, addictions, that are there because of they've been addicted to things for years and because of this and that, the majority of them are white. The majority of them are affluent. They're not at Lawrence and Lansdowne and Bloor. But because the surveillance is so high at a particular area, you might get lucky. If you get lucky, if there's 100 people and you, get, you surveil all of them, you'll be right 50% of the time. But if you don't surveil anybody, you'll never know. So in these particular areas, we're having a situation where it's under-policed, and then it's over-policed somewhere else. But again, keeping in mind that in order for us to get it right, we first have to be able to show the context. We recognize that there's prejudice, but critical race theory is more than just an understanding of what race is. Critical race theory draws on the priorities and perspectives of both uh, critical legal studies and conventional civil rights scholarship while sharply contesting both of these fields. So it actually puts them together. Angela Harris describes CRT as sharing a com commitment to a vision of liberation from, a racist, from racism through high reason with the civil rights tradition. So look at this, high reason. So I learned about critical race theory when I was in my second year of law school. And I had to put together the library for critical race theory for the African Canadian Legal Clinic. And so the director of the clinic at the time was a woman named Margaret, Margaret Parsons, and she knew me as a court worker before and asked me to come. I didn't even know what this was. I didn't even know that it was a thing. And so this uh, particular scholar, Angela Harris, is one who's very well known in the area. But you can see that it draws on the priorities and perspectives of both critical legal studies and conventional civil rights. It is a drawing together of both. It is what has been done before, but never articulated in such a way as to call it something. So CRT becomes that. And all it does is it takes the understanding that there is a legal underpinning to most things, but that legal underpinning has to be meshed with something else. So we saw that there was a lot of civil inju injustice that was happening. And so now when you're able to marry that with the, both the legal studies and the conventional civil rights, you're able to give yourself critical race theory. But it was important that it became conjoined. So in other words, it was no longer just hairy, fairy, this or that. And that's why critical race theory has become so difficult for some people. Because it, it's, not, it's not a drawing on, um, on sort of like these ethereal understandings. It's not that. It's actually grounded in some legal study. It's grounded in a legal understanding. It deconstructs some premises and arguments of legal theory and simultaneously holds that legal constructed rights are incredibly important, as described by Derek Bell and Angela Harris, who were both, as, we, as I said before, Angela Harris, Derek Bell is another, another. Critical race theory is committed to radical critique of the law, which is normatively deconstructions, deconstructionist and radical emancipation by the law. So again, it's, a, it's almost like a pushing and a tugging. You have a situation where you're going to legally construct something that you're already deconstructing at the same time. So look at the example of, and so I, I say this knowing that there are, there are systems that have been established without the participation of individuals that are actually under the thumb of the law. So the best one that I can say is slavery. So when slavery was being constructed, it clearly wasn't being constructed with black people in the room. Because you could be a slave, you could be on a plantation, 
you could have your wife being taken advantage of, your kids going all of these different places that you didn't have, you could be working without any money, and then you decide to leave that plantation and now you're on the outs of the law. So there is a system that was created. Now, if I was in the room and you were creating slavery, I might say, you know, I think the, the beating thing, you should let us go if you beat us. And at least I would be able to give you a commentary. You know, if you're going to rape people and, and pillage, maybe you might want to think that might not be legal if I want to leave. But because I'm not in the room, you're able to create a system that actually doesn't work with me, a box that actually can make it illegal for me to do something that I believe is actually the right thing to do. So what happens is critical race theory takes that, it deconstructs something that is legal in order to show that it is incorrect. Why is this important for then for you? And I'm saying this knowing that critical race theory is something that is not only important, it's teachable. It's not only teachable, it's important for you to understand. Because as lawyers, when you're out there, it's going to be important for you to deconstruct something that is legal. So the first thing that Noah does when he sees something, he takes the law apart. He says, this is the law, this is how it should be. And now I'm saying to Noah, you can't even do that anymore. If the law is wrong, if you see that there is an error in it, if you see that the law has to be enhanced, then what you have to do is to be able to take that law, change it, deconstruct it, and then make it something that it should be. It can only be done, though, generationally. So some of the cases that you'll see that are here are cases that we argued as young lawyers. So keeping in mind, when I argued Golden, I was only a lawyer for like a minute. But in order for us to be able to push it, we had to be able to have those lawyers that were willing to say, you know what, I think my intuition's right here. I think something's wrong here. So same with Hamilton and Mason, same with D. Brown, same with RDS, same with Williams. All of those cases come generationally. They come actually when we are right there. But as young lawyers, we were, not, we were not poisoned by what was there before. We allowed our own minds to be able to determine for us how we should move forward. That's how I think that you should be. Legal issues connected to bias, I said some of them already, so arbitrary detention, pretext pedestrians or HTA stops. This was a big thing some years ago. Police officers used to be able to come up to someone and simply say, um, Let's say that three of us are hanging out. They could literally come up to us, check us, ask us where we live. And then what they would do is they would make this card. It was a 208 card. And it had my name. It would have your two names on it. And then they would say that we are all a gang. Or they'd say that we are all, we assemble together. So then what would happen is, let's say uh, Stefan gets in trouble, but Stefan was with me when the officer came. Then they'll come to my house and say, well, where were you on Monday or whatever day? I'm like, what? But because now of this illegal search, I'm now in this system where they actually made a card for me. Unreasonable search and seizure, search of persons or vehicles prior to arrest, unlawful arrests, charges for, from pretext stops of um, unreasonable searches, violations of rights to counsel in silence. So these are the things that we know are connected with bias. These are the things that we know are going to be important. So context. And again, in this exercise, the first thing that we have to look at is context. So what I have, what I will show you now, is uh, particular area codes. And I'll base those area codes on information that we garner from them. So let's look at this first one. This is 2008, and it's 2008 because that's when these rankings could be done, okay? So this is the area code of M3N. 
And that is uh, Jane and Finch. Those who live at Jane and Finch will know that area code well. Um, if we look here, sorry if I'm in your way. Incarceration costs uh, is 36 million. So it's almost $37 million that they paid in incarceration costs. Now what's an incarceration cost and how is it that you can know that here? So remember, this is not based on your race. This is just based on an area code. So when you live in this area code, you live in Jane and Finch and the surrounding areas that are there. This area code also means that if you go to jail, they don't necessarily write your, your race, at least they didn't in 2008, and they don't necessarily do it now. But you can know that you, when you do sign in, you're gonna have to put what your address is. So this is solely based on this address. Police expenditures, 30, what, almost 31 million? So look at this, the percentage of families with one parent is 39%. That's 22% over the national average. The total population is 15 years and over with no certificate or diploma. Now this one is a very interesting one. No certificate or diploma is 47%. It's 27% over the national average. So when you look at that another way, that means almost every other person in this area code has not finished high school. They haven't finished high school. They don't have a degree, they don't have a certificate, they don't have a diploma. Well, the reality is that if you don't have a certificate, it's very hard for you to get a diploma. If you don't have a diploma, it's very hard for you to get a degree. So 47%, the 12% uh, unemployment rate is 5% over. The median income is $37,000, right? That's $27,000 under the average. We knew that median salary is around $50,000 a year. Now, these numbers are very interesting. It says Westview Centennial Secondary School is one out of 109. Now, the lower the number is the worse the school, right? So if you're one out of 109, that's not a good score. Now, for the 479, the higher the number, again, the better the score. So that means if you're closer to 479, again, you're a better school. The schools that are here, Brookview, Shoreham, Driftwood, 1539. So when you look at this ranking, it means then that the incarceration rates for $37 million is how much was spent on someone that went to jail during that time. We can know the number because you can actually figure out how much somebody makes, uh, how much it costs for someone to be in jail. You know how much it costs for the guards, you know how much it costs for their food, you know all of that stuff. It's very simple, it's, it's just math. This is, uh, Eglinton East and Kennedy. So I tell you guys that I lived at Regent Park. When I moved from Regent Park, I lived at M1K4P7, as this is in Scarborough. So I lived at Midland and Eglinton. This is Kennedy Park in Eglinton. Incarceration rates, 22, almost 23 million. Again, you see the police expenditures. Percentage of families is 33%. Uh, total population, 15 years, a certificate. You're over by 3%, so you see all the numbers that are here. Median. Uh, household is 24,000, 39 under. Bendale, which is a school that was just across the street from me, is 18 out of 109. So again, the higher the number, the better it is for, for here. So these had higher numbers, 120, 87. Now, before I get to this now, the next slide is what I consider to be eye-opening. So this is Rosedale. Incarceration rates in Rosedale is zero for the same time. What that means 
is that in 2008, not one person went to jail in Rosedale. It has got to be the most incredible stat that I've ever seen when we know that this is $37 million worth of people that went to jail. 37 million. It's zero. So what that means is that even, now it doesn't mean that that meant that there was no crime in Rosedale. It meant then that if you either got bail, so if it was that you had been arrested for what have you, you may have been arrested and then released. So that meant that this area code didn't register a dollar. But in this place, it's zero dollars for incarceration. The police expenditure is lower than the others. But look at this, percentage of families with one parent or less is 11%. Oops. This number, 39%. That's only one family homes, right? Um, total population, 15 years and over without a certificate, 7%. It's actually under the national average. They're doing so well, it's under. Unemployment, again, is under. The median income is $179,000. Now, why is this number so interesting? So in Canada, $179,000 is made by less than 1% of the population. But in this area code, it's just the median. Uh, again, now when you look at the numbers, remember, the higher the score, the better. Northern is 104 out of 109. And, and Northern is a public school. But it's a public school in a very affluent neighborhood, right? North Toronto Collegiate, 105. Look at this. 479 out of 479. The school is perfect. Like, it's perfect. These numbers, again, you have to understand not just the context. You have to, when you're doing a case, be able to understand everything that you need to know about the subject area that you're going to be working on. This is critical race. This is dealing with race. So we have to be able to see it from this perspective. Uh, incarceration costs, this is just a, it's able to tell you sort of where, where the costs are. You'll see, though, here in the middle, it's very low. In the middle, it's between zero and, I can't see the number here. I have to look on the screen. But if you look here, some of these spots are actually zeros. Zero, 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 zero. Like, there's, there's nothing here. It's, it's, it, this is, is indicative, then, of what, where people are going to jail. So I wanted to do this. Uh, just raise your hands if you are uh, in law school here. OK? So first question. Raise your hand if you have one parent that is university educated. Okay, so I'd say that's about 86% of the people that are here. Raise your hand if you have lived with both of your parents for the majority of your life. So it means then that your parents could be separated now. But let's say if you're 25, they were still together when you were 12 and 14 and 15. So if you've lived with both of your parents for the majority of your life, raise your hand. Okay. Raise your hand if you have two parents and both have a degree. This number always perplexes me. It's, it's surprising, but it's, it's, it's interesting, okay? 
Raise your hand if you have a if you've lived in an upper middle class home, meaning that your parents made more money than fifty thousand dollars a year. Okay. Raise your hand if you went to private school. Private school meaning that you went to school where you had to pay to go to school. So it could have been a nominal amount, it could be high amount, it could be uh, a. Um, it could even be a school like, say, a, a Jewish school or a, um, like a specialty or a separate school. Raise your hand if you went to that. Okay. So, when I came to law school, I would have to answer no to all of these questions. This school has very few racialized individuals in this school. Here, university educated is about eight, and this is just me spitballing it, okay? It's about 86%. Live with both parents, about 95%. Two degrees, about 75%. Upper middle class, about 90%. Private school is about 15%. So when we look at these numbers, we start to recognize that there is a reason why this law school does not have a lot of people from the M1K 4P7 area code. Because for some reason, we don't get here. So why don't we get here? There still has to be an analysis as to why it is that we're not here, why we're not present in this school. Now, it could be some who would say it's geography. I mean, who wants to drive all the way out to Kingston? But then there's a lot of people that would say, look, if I only had one law school to go to and it was five hours away, I'm going there. So there's people that will go to law school in England just to go to law school and then get back here. So we recognize that it may not be, may not be things like um, uh, um, it may not be things like geography, but I do that as an example for us to be able to say that from these area codes, there are not a lot of people. And so there has to be something outside of the fact, unless it is that racialized people are just not as smart as people that are non-racialized. There has to be a reason why they're not here. And so finding out the reason why they're not here means that you have to put some context behind why they haven't made it to this spot and why this spot is a spot that they'd want to be at. So it says here, available data indicative, indicates that serious violence is concentrated within Toronto's black communities. Gardner Thompson, 24, for example, showed that between 1992 and 2003, the homicide rate for black Torontonians was 10.1 uh, murders per 100,000. Was more for greater than the city average. Further analysis demonstrates that young black men are particularly vulnerable, indeed, whereas black males account for only 4% of Toronto's population. In 2007, they represented 40% of Toronto's homicide. 40%. Uh, thus, black males had a homicide victimization rate of approximately 28.2% uh, compared to 100,000, compared to 2.4 for Toronto's population as a whole. Now, again, so this is Wortley. This is the same Wortley that I'd used back in 1996. And you'll find that why it becomes so important was because we were all trying to build this catalog around information. So Scott, who actually is white, uh, was an individual that was very much involved with stats. And, and so he's the one that taught uh, criminology at U of T and is still a tenured professor there now. So you see here where I say remaining current. Everything that we do, we have to be current about it. We can't always rely on the information that our clients give us. We can't just rely on the information that whether it be police, persons that are buying things, it doesn't matter. We have to know our information for ourselves. 
survey data demonstrates that black youth in Toronto report higher levels of violent offending and violent victimization. Uh, for example, 53% of black students who participated in this youth crime and victimization survey indicated that they had been involved in three or more fights in their lifetime compared to 39% of white students, 32% Asian, 28% is that. Again, and this comes out of this report, Owusu Bempa uh, and Scott Wortley have now done a, a series of papers together. Owusu Bempa is actually at U of T as well. Uh, but again, they're coming with information that was at one point not known to anyone. So now again, looking at the context, let's see what we, our numbers are when it relates to corrections. There was an 80% increase, and these numbers become important when we start figuring out how it is that our numbers are as high as they are. There's an 80% increase in black inmates in federal prison between 2003-2013. Imagine that 80% increase. The percentage of black inmates in federal prisons is 9.5%, even though we're 3% of the population. 50% of black inmates are age 30 or younger. That is a staggering number. 50% is actually 30 years old or younger. The last 10 years, the male Aboriginal inmate population has grown by 45%. The male black population has grown by 74%. The same period, the Caucasian inmate population was decreased by offenders 6.9%. These slides are laying the foundation. Without the context, I think that it's important, but we need to be able to understand first what the context is. So all of these things are simply laying the context of what I think is important, and we will litigate at some point down the road. Police discretion. Um, look, the discretion is an easy one. We realize that police officers will do their best to make sure that they do their job, but there are those, and this analysis of Toronto police data on drug arrests carried out by the Toronto Star showed that black people were not only overrepresented in drug possession charges, but were also less likely to be released by the police at the scene than white people. Now, keeping in mind, we saw the stat already about the incarceration rates. So we know that the incarceration rates in certain areas as high as it is. So when we see this uh, particular information, we'd have to agree with it. Because the stats bear out that this is actually the case. Uh, of the population, while 76.5% of white accused were released at the scene on drug possession charges, the same was not true. Only 61% of black accused were released. So again, now we know when we're looking at those incarceration numbers, we understand why those numbers are the way that they are. Pre-trial detention rates also varied. The two groups says 15.5% of black accused were held until their trial compared to 7.3% of whites. These findings held constant even after controlling for other relevant factors. So they control for everything. It still comes back high. A study conducted again by Aquilo and Wortley provides further evidence of racial disparity in pretrial decision making. This study tracked over 1,800 criminal cases from two Toronto bail courts during a six month period in 1994. Now this 1994 is an important time because they were actually doing something called the Cole Gittins Report. The Cole Gittins report was one of the first reports that had come out around incarceration in jails, around what the release, the release percentages were. And so a lot of this information was coming right from that. The rate of black youth aged 12 to 17 in youth correctional facilities is four times higher than their proportion in the general population. Black inmates are 1.5 times more likely to be incarcerated in facilities where programming, employment, education, rehabilitation, and social activities are limited. So why this becomes important, especially the last button, uh, bullet point, is because when you are in a 
provincial institution. So to show you the difference, here in Kingston, these are federal institutions. When you're in a federal institution, that means that you will have programs. You'll have, you can go to school, you can do a series of different things. You're allowed to do any of those things while you're incarcerated. But when you're in a remand center, in a provincial holding center, there are no programs available to you. So then you, there's no employment, there's no education, there's no rehabilitation. What that means is that if you go to jail unemployed, you're still unemployable when you leave. So it means then that there is a strong possibility that you will either reoffend, you'll get back into trouble again, or you definitely won't be going out and getting a job. So these remand centers become very important. You can actually have someone in a remand center for years, depending on the, the, the charge that they're, that they're facing. Again, all this is doing right now is laying the context. Ontario has five medium security prisons. Uh, black inmates are held in just two of those, and that's Joyceville and Collins Bay. Now those classifications have actually changed over time. They're not the same as they were before. Percentage of black inmates in Joyceville is 37%. Imagine that number. It's 37%. But we are only 3% of the population. How is that possible? that the number is that high. Percentage of black inmates in Collins Bay is 27%. And here we are again, you see the percentage of Ontarians who are black, and then we've, we've obviously rounded up. But this is such a high percentage. Um, you know, when I went to Mac, so I went, my undergrad was at Mac, so I grew up in a neighborhood that was 99.9% .9 black. So when I went to school, everybody's black. When I went home, everybody's black. In fact, I could tell you who the only ill Italian person was in my neighborhood, Luigi. Mary Vecchio. Mary Vecchio lived in the building across from me. She lived with her mom. I remember going to her house, and the first time I ever saw someone put a cross on their wall, I'm like, why do you have a cross on your wall? She's like, I'm Catholic. I'm like, you're what? What's that? You're Catholic? Mary Vecchio. I never ran into a Jewish person. In fact, I'm still not sure if I had a Jewish person even in my high school. There was a guy there named Donnie Gibson. It's the closest I could think. Maybe he was Jewish. I have no idea. So I go from there, and then I go to Mac. When I go to Mac, it's the most white people I've ever seen, like in one place. And then I came to Queens. <laughs> oh my goodness, I couldn't believe it. So when you look at a number, try and picture it that way. So uh, the... So when you go to Joyceville, or you go to Collins Bay, it's like a sea of black people. So it's like Queens in reverse. And I say that because it gives you an understanding of just how staggering that number is. When you say 37% of a place is of a particular race, that means wherever you look. Well, think about it. 3% of the population is black now, almost 4%. It's not like you don't see black people around when you're walking or when you're going places. Now imagine then if it's, you multiply that about 100 times or whatever the percentage is, you have 37% are that particular race. That's how staggering the number is. So when you go to Joyceville, so I did clinical correctional when I was here. When I would go to Joyceville, I would actually see my friends in Joyceville. Like people that I knew from like back in the day. Like, and so I, went, I don't do that. I mean, well, you know what, fine, it's on the podcast, which is okay. So there's a thing called judges to jail. And you go to jail, and when you go to jail, you, um, 
you, you actually get to go right into the institution. When you get into the institution, you will, they take you to a whole bunch of places. And it's actually a good program. It allows you to see um, just how the institution works. So we go to Collins Bay. And when we go to Collins Bay, the way that Collins Bay works, it's you, when you go through one of the doors, it opens up into this big sort of area. So I'm there with these other judges. I've only been a judge maybe three years now, somewhere thereabouts. And um, so I come in with everybody else, right? We're all walking around, and we have that like judges walk, like you know, like we're very judgy, right? So we're looking around because we're such great judges, and we're looking. And I could hear someone say, Donald's here. So I look up, and I see someone who I know. And he's like, yo, D. I'm like, yo, what's going on? What are you doing? He comes down. But he comes down with some of our other friends that have been in that neighborhood. So now all the judges are kind of like, oh, this is very close. <laughs> Just uh, for the record, it's a little closer than we expected. And, uh, but, it's so, but it's to tell you, if 37% of the people that are in that institution are black, there's a strong possibility that I'm going to know somebody from there. Not just because I'm well known, it's not that, it's because I'm also from the area code of persons that have been incarcerated in these particular neighborhoods. So yes, it was correct that I knew a lot of people and nobody else knew anybody. But it's to tell you, it's, it's this, this understanding that we have to understand, and I, I know I said understanding, we have to understand, is, is that in order for us to unpack, in order to move forward, we can't do it without knowing the context. The context means then that at every turn, in any case that we do, we have to make sure that we understand the context first. Systemic discrimination while in custody. This is interesting as well. All black inmates reported experiencing discrimination by other inmates and correctional officers, officials. Much of the behavior exhibited by CSC staff would fall within the academic literature described as covert discrimination. Many inmates talked about feeling ignored by prison staff and that their concerns were dismissed. Other instances were more overt. Now again, if we're looking at the lens of critical race theory, there's an understanding then that why wouldn't this happen? This is just an extension of years or a legacy of being treated a particular way. And now you're incarcerated. And so because you're incarcerated, there's this idea that you could be labeled a gang member. Now, we talked about those 208 cards. Remember, if it's me and Stefan and we're together, so it's me, Stefan, Luigi, or we're all together in one place, and maybe Jonathan comes in after, if they take all of our cards, we could be considered a gang. Well, they're all associating together. Every time I see them, they're together. Jonathan got in trouble, they must have been with him. So then now you start having these gang affiliations, troublemakers, drug dealers, womanizers, Black women inmates also described being labeled as troublemakers when they congregated. Black inmates also reported instances of being mocked or their accents. So this is well before your time, but you know the prison across the street, uh, well, off division, that's where the prison for women was. So they used to call it P4W. P4W was the only federal institution that had women and housed them there. And so because I was a part of a thing called Black Inmates and Friends, I would go over there to see the inmates that were there at the time. And you would hear the stories of women who had either been abused themselves, and then after being abused themselves, they may, I remember this is even before Lavalier had come out, 
and they were in trouble. They were in jail. They had either struck back with their, for their significant others, or they had done things to, to stop the things that were going on with them, or they were mules at the time. We called them literally, quote unquote, mules, bringing importing drugs. And so that had to be stopped. And so when you look at the case of Hamilton and Mason, which we'll talk about later, Hamilton and Mason is a case that actually had to deal with that. But again, before we get to the case law, before you start to litigate anything, you have to look at what it is that you're actually dealing with in the context in which you find it. So the gang member stereotype was a particular concern of, of black male inmates. Because if you were labeled as a gang participant, then it also meant that there were some jails you couldn't go to. But it also meant more than that. If you were to be, say, qualified down from a maximum to a medium, or if you were a high maximum, you were going to go to like a low medium, if they felt that there was this gang membership, uh, member affiliation with you, you may not be able to get to that jail. So these things become very important. Uh, while as of 2013, black inmates were nearly two times more likely than the general inmate population to have a gang affiliation, 21.3 versus 12.3 the majority did not have such an affiliation. They felt as though everything they did or said was assessed through this lens. And you could see that when, when inmates were in jails, many times people got this gang affiliation. Sometimes just depending on your area code. Sometimes just depending on where you lived, how you lived there, who you associated with. It became very problematic. Uh, disproportionate incarceration of African Canadians. The numbers will speak for themselves. The most recent 2016, so 2016 is an interesting year because that's a consensus year. So that's why some of these numbers are from there. That was one of the first times that we had a long form consensus. We didn't have that before. So we were able to find out more things. We could be more granular with the information than we could have before. In the most recent 2016-2017 OCI report, black inmates comp comprised 8.6% of the total incarceration. So OCI is also, yes, go ahead. So I don't have a stat on that, but um, I can only talk through empirical, right? So let's say, and I'm talking through empirical as, as a lawyer. As a lawyer, I did a lot of dangerous, what they call DOs, right? So you do the DO application, which is dangerous offender application. Um, and we did a lot of them. Like There were a lot of individuals that came as dangerous offenders. So now you, you, you ask yourself, it's an interesting question, Jonathan, but you ask yourself, you know, mental health is a very strong component about individuals that are in the criminal justice system. Um, in fact, so they say that black people access mental health through ambulances and police cars. That's usually how they get diagnosed. So many times, dangerous offenders were coming up who basically had no, nothing but mental health issues, but they were undiagnosed. Keeping in mind that many people that come before the criminal justice system are undiagnosed. So uh, there is a rage that would be acting out. So I would be interested in seeing what that number is. I don't have it here, but I would imagine that it would be a pretty high number based on the information that we have thus far, right? Uh, while the total number of black inmates was, has decreased by 9% since the OCI's 2013 study, the overall inmate population has also decreased by 6% over the same period. Ontario continues to have the largest black inmate population, nearly three times the number in the Quebec region. So 
you know, a stat that I did not know of until maybe many years ago, maybe five years ago, was that Toronto actually has more housing than anywhere else in North America. More than, it's only second to Compton. Now that's an incredible number. So we have more Ontario housing. I grew up in Ontario housing, so I know it's called something different now, but there is Ontario housing and Ontario housing units in Toronto, in Ontario, was second only to Compton. That's to tell you how many places we had that were basically low-income housing. And I say that because when we're looking at this, again, the largest black inmate population, we have all these racialized individuals in very concentrated areas. And these concentrated areas are being over-surveilled. And then they're being over-surveilled and then they're being high, high arrests. And then those high arrests are then being brought to the courts. So it's no wonder that our incarceration numbers are as high as they are. So then when you see the stat that says that many of the homes are only have a single parent in it, well, it's because you've got so many people that are in jail. Then when you realize what the income level is, they're under the national average. Imagine that. It's $50,000 as a median. And you have people that are making $22,000. In 2008, my mom made $19,000 in, like, there wasn't a two in front of that number, for sure. So how is it that they only increased $4,000 in a matter of 10 years, 12 years? Something, something's not right. But this also has to be able to answer the question, why are they not here? So why are there not more racialized individuals that are in law school? Like, why? Why are they not, you know, and not, not uh, in some of the other areas of study? Why are they not in university? Consequences of incarceration. Despite being rated as having a slightly lower risk to reoffend and lower need overall, as compared to the general inmate population, black inmates are more likely to be placed in maximum security institutions. So where you're classified. So imagine that from the time you come in, you're already classified as maximum. Black inmates are more likely to be placed in maximum security institutions. Black inmates are released later in their sentence. So again, we know that you can do one third your sentence in a federal penitentiary, and they're saying that you're usually released later. Now you can be released later when you start to look at different things. If you have a disciplinary case, if you're being brought up on something because you're in custody, all of these things are gonna amount to you not being able to be out in a, in a, in a decent period of time. Um, many indicators of correctional performance, black inmates fell behind that on general inmate population. They're more likely to incur institutional charges, which we talked about, which some of you who are here in, in clinical correctional will know. Less likely to be employed, particularly in jobs of trust or in CORCAN, a CSA program that provides job training. Slightly overrepresented in segregation placements, overrepresented in use of force incidents. So you're not going to get out and get a job. You're going to be in a situation where once you're in custody for a long period of time, then what's going to happen once you've left? Excessive use of force, police overreactions, denial of bail, overcharging. So you could charge someone with more than one. Uh, you know, what used to happen is you, you might be charged with five or six counts. Maybe one might stick. But then you might plead guilty knowing that, you know, I didn't have a, I'm getting a good deal. I want to get out now. Um, Mandatory minimums or imposing lengthy terms of jail for black 
blacks compared to less disadvantaged persons. Now we know there's been a, a change in mandatory minimums, which you may not have known, it really just happened a little while ago. It actually has now been changed in the legislature itself, but we knew that mandatory minimums changed with some cases like Neuer, um, Morris was another one that actually actually changed it so that you could take away mandatory minimums from certain cases. But there is still, uh, there, there has to be, you know, I mean, before you get to jail, you have to have done something. You have, to, you have to be able to analyze other things. And what I think is important to analyze is education. So education is one of the tools or one of the portals that might actually lead you one way or the other. Again, keeping in mind that you are trying to figure out how it is that you argue a case dealing with either critical race theory or understanding context. There is a lot that you have to be able to un unpack in context, even when you're dealing with race. Uh, well, this is where I normally ask those questions. So race matters. So I'm going to come closer just to look at these numbers. These numbers are actually from an organization called YACE. And that organization uh, was able to get these from the TDSB, so from the Toronto District School Board. These are not like numbers out of nowhere. These are actual numbers from the TDSB. So you look at this one up here, students identified as black as early as senior kindergarten are socially and academically vulnerable, according to early development index. So when you look at students are at the provincial standard, so the provincial standard is 69%, black kids are at 55%. They're in senior kindergarten. They're already under the, num the average. Reading uh, and writing, the average uh, for the population is 65%. We're at 38%. 35% in writing, 35% in mathematics. We're under the average in reading, 40% in grade 9. This is, so grade 7 and 8, we're, we're not even reading at the level. Grade 9, grade 10, these are the QAOs. So, you know, EQAOs. So before I went to law school, I was a teacher. I was actually a high school teacher. So I taught history, math, and music for a year, and then I went to law school. So education for me is very important, and is actually something. The reason why education is so important to me is because I was terrible at school. So when I was in high school, you guys would have grown up in the era of applied and academic. So I grew up in the area of general and uh, advanced. So I was a general student, so I was applied. I was an applied student until I got to grade 12. In fact, I loved applied because it was so easy. And I was like, well, I love this thing. But in order for me to be a lawyer, I had to go to academic courses. So I had to go to summer school for a summer and take English and, and math, worst summer of my life, and find myself in, in, in academic courses. So I'm already behind. So I'm using this as an example to say I'm already behind. My mom's education would have ended in grade six. So if I'm going to come home and she's going to now, I'm in grade seven, and I'm going to ask her to help me work, she's going to say, I can't help you. I don't know how to help you. So when I ask you that question, remember 96% of you, somewhere thereabouts, when I asked whether or not you had a parent who had graduated from university. And keeping in mind that we now know what the number is for the Jane and Finch, that meant that every other person didn't have a high school diploma or degree or certificate. So then when you start to look at these numbers, it makes sense, because you can extrapolate now. Look, my son is 19 years old. He's going to be 20 years old in April. 
He's in his second year at U of T. He'll send me like an essay of like who knows what. And I'll read it through. I'll give him comments. I'll say whether this is that or that's that. But that's helping him, right? That's helping him. And there's no reason why I shouldn't help him. He's my son. Of course I'll help him. But the reality is that I couldn't do that. So then if I'm in grade nine and I'm already behind, so why this also makes a lot of sense to me and I'm going to, uh, so when I was in grade four, I hung out with the strongest person in the school. His name was Joe Capano. Joe Capano could beat anybody up. And if he just didn't like you, he could just beat you up. And I would be like, Joe, who'd you beat up today? Joe would be like, oh man, I beat up. And we're only in grade four. So Joe Capano and I were hanging out. Like we're like, I used to like make jokes and Joe would just beat people up. So Joe Capano lived in a different neighborhood. We were just friends in grade school. So we're now finished grade four. And to tell you how bad I was in grade four, there was a movie that we're not supposed to watch. You're not supposed to watch it as a boy. Only the girls could watch it. I was always like, why can't I watch that movie? So what I did was I went to the back of the class, and I hid in the coats. And the coats were at the back, so I put the coat around me, and I, so no one could see. And everyone went out, and I could just see through the thing. And it was childbirth. So it starts with the birth happening right then. So I screamed. Like, oh my God. So the lights go on. I'm in the back. They bring me out, go to the office. So I was in grade four. I actually failed every subject in grade four. And so did Joe Capano. So we're not supposed to go to grade five. We're supposed to repeat that year. That was a time when, you know, because you don't know when fails anymore, but back then, people failed. So, but my grade four teacher just happened to be the woman who was the director of the choir. And I, in grade four, happened to be a boy soprano. So then she promoted me to grade five. Literally, I never realized until I saw my report card, I still have the report card. It says promoted to grade five, but every subject says you failed. <laughs> Joe Capano went to a tech school. Literally, our lives just went like this. And so Joe Capano, I, I never saw him again, but then he went to Bendale, that school that you had seen some slides ago. And I never saw him again, but he went to a tech school. Then I ended up going to Midland High School, and then I ended up going to university. But I'm saying those things because if you're behind, you're going to be behind for a very long time. And so when you start to get to see these numbers, look at this. The EQAO math, the TDSB average is 57%. For black kids, it's 18%. Literacy tests. 48%. So we actually most fail it. But these are the numbers that are helping us to understand where we are educationally. Um, TDSB at the provincial standard, again, EQAO, 18%, 57%. This is grade 9. The reason why they use grade 9 and grade 6 is because you only do the EQAO twice. You do it in grade 3, you do it again in grade 9. Um, so now we have this understanding of the background. And the understanding of the background is going to help us to understand the next thing, so, edu so education. Black students suffer from disproportionately high dropout rates. So now we can understand why they're dropping out. 
why we're dropping out. Uh, there was a 42% dropout rate amongst black students. Further students suffer from disproportionate high rates of suspension. If you're not being helped, if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't understand. Um, you know, when I came to, when I went to Mac, I remember that um, there was one night, there was a test we were going to do the next day. And so we're going to do this test the next day. And uh, I, I just remember the first name of the fellow. His name was Peter, a very nice guy. And um, I haven't really studied. I'm just trying. I don't really know how to study. So Peter, we have an economics exam the next day. And Peter says that he's going to do an all-nighter. So I'm like, okay. Then I'm like, what do you mean an all-nighter? He's like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay up all night. So I say, you're gonna, you're not gonna go to sleep. He's like, no, I'm gonna stay up all night. You're gonna stay up all night and study. He's like, yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. I say, you're not gonna sleep, not one wink, all day. He's like, that's right. I'm gonna do an all nighter. He does an all nighter. I, of course, go to bed because I'm like, you're crazy. And uh, so. I go to bed, he, and we get up in the morning. But I, I'm still, I'm nowhere near where, anywhere close to this exam. And of course we write it, he passed flying, flying colors, and I don't pass, I fail. Then I start realizing, what is this all-nighter thing? Now I'm saying that to say that I'm behind. In fact, the first A that I ever re receive is when I'm in university. Another fact, the first book that I ever read was in university. So when I was in high school, I never read a book. I used to, well, my son's not here. I used to read the first chapter. Then I would read the second chapter by the binding to see if anyone died. And then I would read the last chapter. And then I would just kind of make it up. Like, you sort of, okay, hey, King Lear is still around. Okay, got it. And so that was me, right? So now I am, and you know, I say, by the grace of God, that's the only reason why I'm here. Yeah, other people might say other things, but I will tell you that is really only that that gets me to stand here. So I'm saying those things because I can relate to this information, knowing again that this is the information that's required in order for us to, to deconstruct the critical race theory as it relates to, say, persons of, of African-Canadian descent, right? This information is going to be important. When well, we took here the Toronto Star report in 2013, that analysis of 2006-2007 academic year revealed that while black students accounted for 12% of the total students in Toronto's public education, they accounted for 31% of suspensions. So then we're finding now uh, another sort of wave of overrepresentation as it relates to crime, but now in the, in the system of the education. Now all of a sudden we're saying to ourselves, well, how is it that they're being suspended so much there's only 12% of them? So we start to look at this and start to ask ourselves, now we have done the education. We've looked at slavery from where it is. We've looked at the understanding of race. We have talked about incarceration. We've talked about all of these things that have allowed us to understand the context. This context now will allow us to be able to litigate further. So why do I tell you all of this? I tell you all of this, and maybe I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm hard on you, but the one thing that I keep impressing upon you is because I think as litigators, as lawyers, there are rules that govern how we actually conduct ourselves. Counsel's obligation. 
Defense counsel have an obligation to identify discrimination against their client and pursue remedies. It is part of being competent and not discourteous. These are the rules that we now follow as lawyers. This is not like, uh, I'm not making this up. These are the commentaries of our rules of professional conduct. The commentary of Rule 5.1-1 of the Rules of Professional Conduct that deals with counsel representing their clients absolutely states, the lawyer has a duty to the client to raise fearlessly every issue, advance every argument, ask every question, however distasteful, that the lawyer thinks will help the client's case and to endeavor to obtain for the client the benefit of every remedy and defense authorized by law. This is a rule. The lawyer has a duty to the client. And it says here to raise fearlessly every issue. And so you can't know every issue simply just one without knowing the context. The reason why I say the critical race theory is something that can be used as an analogous way of being able to, to interpret how to do the law is because when we looked at interpretation of critical race theory, it talked about the fact that it was a legal underpinning that helped to determine civil injustice. So here, you are looking every issue, advance every argument, and ask every question, however distasteful. It doesn't mean that you ask it in a distasteful way. We should not. But you ask it whether you want to or not, and sometimes you are going to have those cases where you're not going to feel comfortable asking particular questions. But you have to be able to advance it. Even though it says defense here, I would say for anyone, that's the duty that the, law, that the lawyer has. Okay, I must believe which. Okay, so there it is. So I, I had a note here. I think this is how you get informed. Okay, go ahead, Noah. When you're submitting background information on systemic discrimination uh, suffered by uh, a black client of yours, yes. and opposing counsel questions the legitimacy of that data input for the, the case of Lauren, mm -hmm. how do you respond to them? Um, all right, so, so it depends on how you present it, right? So now we've, you're saying, so you're, you're, you want to present an argument. And the other side says, please give us enough information to understand why this is even a thing. I feel like if you're maybe you're drawing on background information, making the connection that due to a lower level of education, yeah. higher rates of suspension, your client has maybe fostered a culture of not being consistent with law-abiding principles. And that's some of the context that you're creating. And then maybe the prosecutor of your case responds to the judge by saying that I don't see how this has any relevance to the right. actual the actual legal issue at hand. How do you respond to that? All right, good question. So let's ask the class. So in a nutshell, you have a, a legal argument that you wish to 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 exploit, to bring out. That argument that you want to exploit or bring out, uh, you haven't the other side says, we're not just gonna take your word for it. You need to be able to establish that on some anchor of law to show that one, it's relevant, and two, whether or not it's even admissible. Am I correct on that? Okay. Um, thoughts of the class? Now, what's your name? Uche. I know you're not in the class. <laughs> Uche, I know you're not in the class. That's why I asked you first, because I figured, you know what? Because I'm going to ask the ex that's her next, so it's okay. So. 
define legal status that actually reflect the experience of the black people? So how does the other party even get to negate that? So, like, what is the basis that we use to say it's not relevant when it is, when it's real, when it's lived experiences? Okay, all right. Me and the person next to me could also express the same thing. So I guess I'm not understanding how I would even put that in a legalized form. What I can just tell you it's right. Okay, okay, we keep going, yes? I'm going to come to you, so go ahead. Oh, I, was, I was going to say something similar to what she was saying there. Um, well, I, would, I think uh, even though it's like pretty obvious that most stats and stuff are relevant um, in terms of the person ending up in the situation, that it has to be articulated in a way, um, kind of like what Noah was saying, in a way so that it will be accepted by the courts. And I feel like there's a lot of opportunity to do that, at least in from my limited experience um, at disciplinary court during sentencing, but not uh, at trials, which is uh, what I've also struggled with. Uh, it is possible, though, because uh, I was able to bring some stats in. Right. Uh, but I guess I don't really have the answer to the question. No, we're going we're gonna to answer no in a sec. I would just try to get connected to some part of the legal issues at hand. Okay, Arsene, and then you? I'll, yeah, go ahead, and then after after you, then we'll go to her. Well, I'm grabbing up about sentencing. I was thinking of the gladiator principles uh, in regards to indigenous offenders, like right. when, um, indigenous, like that's only in regards to sentencing. We're allowed to take into factors of like systemic discrimination and things they face in regards to like hopefully like lighter sentencing, lighter sentencing, if I'm correct in the law. Yeah. Um, I remember reading a, a case in Crim last year where they were going to extend the same courtesy to uh, black Canadians. That's right. Yes. Systemic discrimination. Uh, it didn't pass, I don't think, but I think we can take those legal principles and add them earlier in the argument than just sentencing with why the crime was committed in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that's how it faces law. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think the case you're referring to when you mentioned it was Morris. That's right, it's Morris. And they, they do actually, the, the trial judge does take into consideration the earned reports. Yes. Um, however, there was some pushback from um, the Crown basically um, contesting the legitimacy of the social context reports. Yes. So that goes to what Noah was saying. Yeah. Um, and I, um, well, the, the court did take judicial notice of, I think, the, the relationship that black um, uh, Canadians have with the legal system. Yes. And so um, I think that's one part of it, encouraging the, well, trying to push for the court to take judicial notice. Um, and that could push back against, um, you know, that kind of. But also, I, I find that how do we get to the point where um, 
is not saying, is not using that as a, as a defense uh, to rebut, you know, social context evidence where they also you know, are, are um, uh, taking into consideration um, uh, the, the realities of uh, black Canadians. I, I don't know the So, so Noah's question, this question is a hard question. That's why, you know, Noah's a very interesting person in this class. I always say he is. But he is, so he asks the question that not everyone wants to answer. And I will say this, Noah is a white male. Very hard. But this question has to be asked. And one of the things that I say, that I say this, and the reason why I say that Noah is, is a white male is because sometimes I find that persons that are white don't want to ask this question. But you have to ask this question. Because the slide before us said, even if it's distasteful. And the reason why you have to ask it is because it's the only way that the conversation increases. One, two, as irritated as a racialized person might be hearing this question, you also have to be able to know how to answer the question. Right? So this question is premised on law. Remember, we are lawyers. We didn't come here with signs that said, you know, uh, free whatever. We didn't, that's not what we're doing. We're in the court. The court is going to expect that if you're going to have an answer, it better be admissible, it better be relevant, and it better be proven. If you can't do any of those things, it doesn't matter if I like it, I don't like it, if I agree with you, I disagree with you, it doesn't matter. His job, at least when asking that question, is to be able to ask it so that you can give an answer. If you can't give an answer, then it can't go in. And if it can't go in, then you can't let it in. I'm not just going to let it in because I want to let it in. Keeping in mind that he's right. When I say he's right, I'm saying that because I think sometimes, especially in, in the era that we are in, there are some racialized, non-racialized individuals who will feel, I can't even ask that. I'm saying you have to ask it. If you don't ask it, then you're not doing your job. And if you're not going to do your job, then you have to step out of the way and let somebody else do their job. Now, do I believe that there's an answer to this? There is. And that answer, Noah, comes in the case law. One, to answer the question um, directly, you can't just let this information in without an expert. So now we know when we're qualifying experts on trial in trial advocacy, you know that that expert has to be qualified in the area. That area has to be admissible. So now if you were going to bring this in for whatever it is you were going to talk about, and so now when you're talking about the case of Morris, uh, Morris was one that would have brought this information in through an expert. So Scott Wortley would have testified at it. Bempo would have testified at it. In order to be able to establish that race not just matters, but why it has a context in here. So where we go now then is to the case law. So now that we have the context, and so you know your, answer will be answered, especially, your question will be answered, especially as we're going through. But one of the things that's important then is to understand the case law in this area and why it's important that we have to be able to establish ourselves as litigators willing to ask even the most distasteful questions. Parks. So Parks is where we start. Parks says that racism, and in particular anti-black racism, is a part of our community's psyche. A significant segment of our community holds overtly racist views a much larger segment subconsciously operates on the basis of negative racial stereotypes. Furthermore, our institutions, including the criminal justice system, reflect and perpetuate those negative stereotypes. These elements combine to infect our society as a whole with the evil of racism, 
Blacks are among the primary victims of that evil. So, at some point, racism is then acknowledged. In Parks, in 1993, so Parks is a case about, um, as a jury, those of you who haven't taken criminal law, uh, and I think you may have, especially if you had to do criminal, especially in your first year. So, Parks is a case where there is a black accused. The black accused wants to be able to challenge the jurors on the idea that what they are, to see whether or not they be racist or not. Now keep in mind that at this point, nobody has been able to ask a juror any questions. You have been able to ask a jury whether they'd be racist. You, you can't ask them anything. As a result of Parks, what's developed is a question. The question is, as His Honor will tell you, a juror must judge the evidence of the witnesses without bias, prejudice, or partiality. Would your ability to judge the evidence in this case without bias, prejudice, or partiality be affected by the fact that the person charged is black? I know the question by heart because I used to ask it all the time. What happens is that question comes as a result of Parks. In order for them to establish it in Parks, they had to call evidence that racism was what they called notorious. Once they felt that racism was notorious, Parks then gives this language. This language then begins a floodgate of, of, of case law starting in 93. Now, I am Law 95. So when Parks comes out, I'm in law school. I'm just hearing this. This is like new fodder that we've not even heard of before. But we recognize that this is, um, and if you look at it, it's from the Court of Appeal. So that means it was appealed, would have been at Superior Court. Superior Court would have said, okay, you would have had someone who disagreed with it, and then it goes to the Court of Appeal. So this language becomes important to anchor what it is that we want to be able to do. So Williams. Williams' uh, racial prejudice rests on preconceptions and unchallenged assumptions that unconsciously shape the daily behavior of individuals. Buried deep in the human psyche, these preconditions cannot be easily and effectively identified and set aside even if one wishes to do so. Racial prejudice and its effects are as invasive and elusive as they are corrosive. Now, you can't say this until you have this. So what I'm saying to you as well is, as young lawyers, if you're going to push, if you're going to find something that wasn't there before, if you are going to see things that need to be um, either edified in the court or have to be in, in sort of broadened, you have to realize that it has to start somewhere. When Parks came out, there weren't a lot of people that were like, oh, great, we love Parks, great, love it, can't wait to do this. No. They would have asked the question, why are we asking jurors questions at all? We're not supposed to ask jurors any questions. We're not supposed to move the needle. Because we're not supposed to move the needle, we don't think that you should be asking anything. So they would have had to have called evidence. They would have had to have uh, looked into different things in order for it to get to this point. So they called that expert. Um, at the time, I believe it was Francis Henry. It may have been someone different, but Francis Henry uh, at the time, uh, who's uh, daughter is actually a crown attorney. Um, she would have given evidence. Now, after they give this, then you have Williams in 1998. But again, everything in law is based on what was there before. 
Sometimes there's nothing there, or there's an inkling, and there's an intuition. You start back at Parks. So fine, now in 1998, you have this. Williams was, was one of the cases that was argued by Stephen Hinkson. That was my partner. So we were Hinkson, Satchik, McLeod. So these are now cases that are coming out when I'm now a lawyer. So now we're in this, in this sort of area where we are now pushing the, case, the cases forward. Well, we're actually saying that race matters enough that we're actually litigating them in court. So after Williams, you'll see here in 2009, here's Douse. Now, Douse was argued by me. Now, when there was Parks, I felt that as much as they talked about subconsciously, there was no expert evidence that talked about subconscious racism. So remember I talked to you about the arrogance of lawyers, the arrogance that we felt that we could actually answer all queries. So we made up a question. As his honor will tell you, her honor will tell you, a juror must judge the evidence without bias, prejudice, or partiality. Would your ability to judge the evidence in that case without bias, prejudice, or partiality be affected by the fact that the person charged is black? We just made that up. Like, the judge just said, you know what, and the lawyers put something down, and it sounds, you know, that sounds good. Let's, let's, let's roll with that. So for 10 years, we rolled with it. More than 10 years. So. I have this case. This case is a woman who is, she answers her door, and at the time that she opens the door, a gunshot goes off and she gets shot in her face. She is shot in her face, and, but she's shot by the alleged person who is a black male. She is a white female. I'm nervous. I feel like, you know what? This, this is going to be a hard one. Not only is she, she's a mother, she's actually the mother of the person that lived in the house. So an older woman, she gets shot right in her face. Like, it's through a, a glass uh, encasement, and she comes to answer the door. As soon as she answers the door, boom, the gun goes off. So I want to, I want to look into Parks. Because the other thing is, remember, I'm, I'm new. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not that brand new anymore, but I'm new enough that, you know what? No one ever challenges. It just stayed the same every time, every time we asked this question. So I did find an expert in subconscious racism. His name was Lowry, and he was from Stanford University. I spoke to him on the phone, and I asked him the question that they ask in parks. And he said, that's a terrible question. I'm like, Really? But we ask that question all the time. He's like, well, well, then it's a terrible question asked all the time. So I ask him why is it a terrible question. And he says, asking someone whether they'd be racist is like asking a mother whether she would be uh, a good mother, a pregnant woman whether she'd be a good mother. Of course the answer is going to be, yes, I'd be a good mother. But the question should be asked whether, they are, whether you're good. How are you when you're sleep deprived? What are you like with loud noises? What is it like when you're doing this? So these series of questions, he said, needed to be asked. But because they weren't asked, and you know why they weren't asked? Because we made up the question. The question needed to be made up by somebody who, in fact, was in the area. So in Daos, uh, we were able to ask 12 questions. And the questions that we were able to ask would say, do you agree? Uh, I would. I would not agree. I, I can't remember them all now. because. Each one had four questions. And now we were able to say that this is important to help the trier of fact. And so as a result, this comes out where the concern on an application to challenge for cause is based on race. 
There are fundamental distinctions that inform the analysis. They relate to both the nature of the bias and their susceptibility or persistence to judicial cleansing. First, a court can infer a behavioral link between the per pervasive racial prejudice established on the evidence and the possibility that some juries consciously or not would decide the case based on prejudice and stereotypes, where the presupposition is one of a complex and insidious as racial prejudice, we should not assume without more that the judge's instructions will always neutralize it. So look at this language. But you can't get Dallas's language until you see subconsciously operates on the basis of negative racial stereotypes. So I'm not saying that Parks was a, was a bad decision. It wasn't. It was a good decision. But in order for us to make sure that we establish or extrapolate on it or do better, we first have to be able to see what's here. So I saw subconsciously operates. And so in my mind, and again, my intuition would be just like yours. If it's subconscious, then how do I know? So when you ask me if I would be biased, and I say, no, I wouldn't, well, that's not subconscious. That's your conscious part. So how do we deal with the subconscious part? And that's why I say whenever we're looking at something, we have to, one, know the context, but two, if we're going to challenge it, then let's challenge it the right way. So for Noah, then, I have to bring an expert. So he flew up here from Stanford University, and we actually had a series of questions. Now, the judge didn't take it all. He took a small portion of it, but the small portion that he took was what we wanted. And again, it goes to the Court of Appeal. And the court of, uh, no, that one didn't go. The Superior Court took it, and nobody wanted to challenge it because they were afraid that if they challenge it, it could be that now McLeod's going to be right all the time. And so what happens is it's been used on a basis that's worked for us. But here we have now that question being asked. So the law is one where you have to build upon it. You have to build on what was there before. You have to go to the next. RDS. RDS is a very seminal case. But you can't have RDS unless you have Parks. And you can't have RDS unless you have Williams. In fact, Williams comes after, but RDS, uh, on appeal it comes after, but it's being contemplated at around the same time. These are all cases that are coming out of the African-Canadian legal clinic. So that legal clinic had done a series of cases that created a move in the law. So RDS is a case by Judge Sparks, and I think I mentioned it once before. Judge Sparks is a black judge sitting in Nova Scotia. She makes a decision on a case about, uh, against police officers. Police officers said one thing, the black young person said another thing. She sides with the black young person in light of her own experience. So it says there, it should be noted that if Judge Sparks had chosen to attribute the behavior of Constable Steinberg to the racial dynamics of the situation, she would not necessarily have erred. As a member of the community, it was open to her to take into account the well-known presence of racism in that community and to elevate the evidence as to what occurred against that background. That Judge Sparks recognized that police officers sometimes overreact when dealing with non-white groups simply demonstrates that in making her determination in this case, she was alive to the well-known racial dynamics that may exist in inter interactions between police officers and visible minorities. So she took what we already had determined in, in parks about racism and it being uh, such an insidious disease, and then she starts to extrapolate on it based on now her own experience. So now this is the experience of a black woman and I think, well, Judge Sparks at that time would have been the only black woman that would have been a judge. And so 
Uh, in fact, she was the longest, she's only retired, I think maybe a year or two now. But she then is able to take from what was there before and create this. We've looked at RDS now, and, and so one of the exchanges that happens in RDS is that she's delivering her reasons, and the judge in that responded to a rhetorical question by the Crown. Uh, and she says that police officers have been known to mislead the court in the past, and they've been known to overreact, particularly with respect to non-white groups. Now, this is a comment that she makes from the dais while the question is being asked by the Crown Attorney. And so it doesn't necessarily find its way into the reasons, but it's one of the things that um, Justice Sparks at least wants to bring out. So then we have Golden. So now we have gone, as we look at the trajectory of the law, we have seen at least from the start here in 1993 that they're at least acknowledging that there's subconscious racism. And it's found in the institutions, including the criminal justice system. And it perpetuates negative stereotypes. So this is where we started. We see this is something that has actually taken place. Now we see that the law is actually moving. And I'm saying this again for all of those that are interested in other types of law. That if it is that you're going to find it in a place where you realize that the inflection point is still not met, you have to be able to find the lens, critically critique it, and then find a way to enhance that law. Uh, RDS, again, is now here. So then this moves to Golden. So this is now the case. That I've now looked at these cases, and they're now informing this case. African Canadians are more prone to be the recipients of mistreatment during the execution of police powers, such as a strip search, because they represent a disproportionate number of individuals in the criminal justice system. So the fact scenario of Golden is that there is a, a strip search that's taken place in public. And so when it happens in public, um, <clears throat> there is a, uh, an application that's brought. It's lost in Superior Court. Court of Appeal still doesn't, has, a, has a dissent. And then it gets to the, the Supreme Court of Canada. So when I catch up with it, it's here. But now I'm, I'm saying the submissions that I'm saying based on the things that we've already said. So I know that the court now believes that racism is at least notorious. That's what it says in Parks. They've already determined that it's um, also something that we can find in the criminal justice system. So remember, Golden is a search by police officers who are members of the criminal justice system. So I can say some of these submissions to in answer to what Noah's saying. I at least can say that the court can take judicial notice of these things because the court has seen them before and other things before. They should be able to see it now. And Golden is one of those that allows us to be able to do that. So they set up the observations the police officers do in an unoccupied building, which is across from a sandwich spot. And then what happens is they, they start tracking individuals that are, tra that are trafficking in drugs. And so that's why when I use the example around uh, with the judge that I was in front of to say, if you're over-surveilled, you're going to find things a lot of the time. So in Golden now, you this is one of the, the first times that we have on record where the police officers say, yeah, we actually did do a, a, a strip search. And in the strip search, they actually do find drugs. They find drugs that are secreted in the buttocks of Golden. So this is always an interesting premise, especially when you're doing criminal law, where your parent is going to say, but they're guilty anyway. And so that's also one of the things that we have to be able to understand, especially as lawyers, which is that the persons that you're dealing with are not necessarily individuals that have clean hands on one side or the other. But this law was less about Golden and more about the regular community. And that's what you're litigating for. 
So when it is that you're going to be litigating something, it's important for you to know that it's not just about Golden. And this was a... Golden, I, I was a fellow that I knew him, but I didn't know him as Golden. So when he comes up to me years later to say, thanks for arguing his case, and I'm like, oh, I don't remember representing you because I never saw Golden. I only came in as the intervener for the clinic. So Golden was represented. So by the time you get to the Supreme Court of Canada, your client's not there. So when he's saying... He's telling me he's golden. I'm like, I don't know you as golden. I know you as a different name. But I start to realize now that it's him. The reason why these things are important is because it was more than just golden. Because now we had to determine whether or not there were words that we could say. I'd said before that there was some discussion around whether or not we could say black or should we say African-Canadian. Now I was very much of the opinion that we should say black because I felt that it was a stronger word. It would connote more. And I didn't want to soften it by saying African-Canadian, which I felt was not bringing home exactly what we wanted to be able to establish. Now, I wanted to talk about the dignity of the body. And the only reason that I want to talk about the dignity of the body is from the first slides that we saw around context. That body would have been one that was sold on a slave ship. Would have been one. And that, um, you know, there is a, a belief that where... Um, the vestiges of slavery can be found in those individuals who were enslaved. So as you go through that, you start to recognize that there is a, a legacy sometimes of, of you know, bad acts, things that took place before. They've all impacted on how black people may very well conduct themselves. Because it's, it's only psychiatry, it's psychology, like it filters down. If there's hurt, hurt goes to hurt, goes to hurt, goes to hurt, goes to hurt. There's an idea that it can at least find remnants, residual remnants of that within individuals throughout that line. If that is the case, then it may also be the case in reverse, where if you are the son of a slave owner, and then you're the son of this, and you're the daughter of that, and you're the daughter of that, there is a possibility that you can also find yourself with the same mentalities of those who were slave owners before. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are it doesn't mean anything but the fact that it's something that can happen. And if it is that we don't recognize it, then it becomes a problem. If it is that when we're looking at the numbers and we see that in, in socially depressed areas, you have individuals who are 47% of them who are not even finishing high school, then it's no wonder then that the kids of those persons are not even f uh, passing the reading or the EQAO scores. It's because there is some vestige that will find its way into the person of somebody else. But for some reason, we only stop it at the bad. We never stop it at the other. Like as if that may mean very well that there are those that are, that are from a privileged class that could very well find themselves feeling privileged as well. Not necessarily to the same degree, but they may very well have parts of that in traits within them. And so when I'm saying that you can strip search someone in public, that means that you can find that the black body is not worth as much as another body. And so we were able to put that into, the, into our submissions, and actually they put it into the judgment. So we were allowed to see that the words that I had said in submissions found their way into the judgment as well. R.V. Brown. So now look, this is 2003. We've now had Golden from 2001. We've had RDS now. We've, we've had a, a slew of cases that have been helping us to understand and unpack racism. Then we have D. Brown. <clears throat> now D. Brown, the background of this is that D. Brown is actually a basketball player. 
So those who watch the NBA, D. Brown is a guy that he didn't win that dunk competition, but he kind of covers his eyes and he dunks. And so he did it sort of blindfolded, goes in the air, he dunks, and he played for the Celtics. He's a good player, just for the record. So um, now D. Brown's playing for the Raptors. So it's late in his career. He's not like the same D. Brown from before. They give him a contract here. He takes it. So he's coming home, and he's driving a nice car. I think it's like an Escalade. And when he's driving um, home, he gets stopped. And when he gets stopped, he gets searched. And when he, well, he gets stopped, he gets searched. But they realize that he's driving impaired. So he actually gets charged with impaired driving. So what happens is he goes to a lawyer. That lawyer is questioning why was he stopped in the first place. It didn't appear that there was anything wrong with the manner in which he was driving, things of that sort. So then it says here, judges must be careful not to be quickly dismissive of racial profiling arguments because racial profiling can be a subconscious factor. Now remember, we now realize that subconscious has been used some years ago, and they're using it here now, impacting on the exercise of a discretionary power in a multicultural society. So let's stop there for a moment. So D. Brown is one of the first times that anyone's saying racial profiling. The reason why they're talking like this is because when it was brought up at the trial, that, that lawyer was hammered, like relentless. When you read the transcript, you can see that the lawyer that brings this up is being treated in a way that is less than favorable. The, the judge that's there is, is almost suggesting, like, why are, you, why are we even talking about this? Why is this even a thing? And every time the argument gets presented, it, it gets into a situation where it's not a shouting match, but I, I wasn't there, but you can see on the transcript that there's a problem. Like, there's, there's a problem in here. Now, you saw what I said was the, the, what it was the expectation of a lawyer. So that means this lawyer is asking those questions, no matter how distasteful they are, not asking it in a distasteful manner, but that, that lawyer is asking some questions that this judge is just like, you should not be asking these things. Why do you keep asking this? And literally, you can see it in the transcript. So that's why this commentary is made. Uh, quickly dismisses of racial profiling arguments because racial profiling can be a subconscious factor. Now, keeping in mind, this is 2003. So this is one of the first times that's being brought up. Subconscious and unconsciously biased discrimination decisions may occur in policing and proof thereof may be inferred from the circumstances that correspond to the phenomenon of racial profiling. So now it's said. 2003, we've now said it. Now keep it in mind, I couldn't say that in Golden. I hadn't said it in Golden. Nobody has said it. The first time that we're saying it is in 2003. So now, we at least have now another step that we've been able to unearth as a result. And now we're talking about racial profiling. In fact, in Brown, uh, they gave a whole bunch of factors as to what could be seen. Um, the type of car you're driving, the manner in which you're driving, a whole bunch of different things. But the reality is that the court also said it could be all of those things or none of those things. It didn't matter. Uh, before addressing the appellant's submissions, I shall set forth a brief overview of the case and the basic issue of trial. On November 1st, 1999, Colt was... Uh, I'm just reading here a note that I gave myself. 
So they're on the Don Valley Parkway in Toronto in a marked police uh, Jeep. At 12.55, they signal for, and his name is Decoven, but they just call him D. Brown. African-American who was wearing a baseball cap and a jogging suit and driving a brand new Ford Expedition to pull over to the right shoulder of the road. The officer informed the respondent that the speed limit was 90 kilometers an hour and that he was traveling in excess of that speed. Then the officer says he detected the odor of alcohol. So there it is. So the officer is following the car, and that's why they were able to determine that it wasn't impaired. He wasn't driving in an impaired manner. wasn't waving, wasn't weaving in and out. The car was just driving regularly. But why they stopped the car was what the council figured was important. So driving a hat, driving with a hat on, nice car, that's really all it is that allowed them to pull the car over. They said the excessive speed, but it's interesting that they never said what the speed was. So then they arrest him for over 80. They don't even arrest him for impaired because the car wasn't, wasn't weaving, was driving regularly. So they find a reason, pull that car over, then charge the person with something, and that's how this happens. So now you have Grant. Grant becomes a very interesting case because Grant is a person that actually has a gun on them. So three police officers were on patrol for the purpose of monitoring an area near schools with a history of sudden assault, student assaults, robberies, and drug offenses. So they're dressed in plain clothes and are driving in an unmarked car. Uh, one was in uniform driving a marked car. So there's three officers, one's in a marked, one's in unmarked. The accused, a young black man, was walking down a sidewalk when he came to the attention of the officers. When he comes to the attention of the officers, they say that he's fidgeting. And so they come up to him, uh, they ask him for a chat, they approach him, uh, they ask him if he has any concerns, is he okay, is everything all right? Uh, then they ask what's going on, what's wrong? They ask for his name, his address. Um, at one point, the accused behaving nervously adjusted his jacket, which prompted the officer to ask him to keep his hands in front of him. Now remember, the only thing that they know about this person is that he's walking on the street. That's all that they've seen. So they, uh, they then start to, they search him, and when they search him, they find a gun on him. Now, as a result of finding the gun, he gets arrested for the gun offenses, and then what's brought is an action in the court uh, saying that it was an illegal search and seizure. Shouldn't have stopped him. So section eight for the search, section nine for the detention. They give him an eight and a nine, and then what happens is we get this. There's a growing body of evidence and opinion suggests that visible minorities and marginalized individuals are at particular risk from unjustified low visibility police interventions in their lives. And then you start to see the cases that they use. So see that they use Golden. And then they start to use other things, the Human Rights Commission report. They start to use the uh, report on the Commission of Systemic Racism in the, in the judicial system. That's 95, that's Cole Gittins. So now there's this body of evidence that they're starting to use in order for them to make decisions even in this case. Visible minorities may, because of their background and experience, feel especially unable to discard police directions and feel that assertion of their right to walk away will itself be taken as evasive. So now we have this. Now, now we're, we've, we've extrapolated on what was there before. What's interesting is that they didn't allow, they ruled that there was a charter violation, but the gun stayed in. All right, so the gun that was found was still something that remained in 
even though there was a charter violation. Now, at this point, the, there are cases around guns such as Neuer, and those are now newer cases. So Neuer, a case coming out, I think, in 2016 or 17, is now when they deal with this gun issue again. But we see that the law is still moving forward, right? It's now, this is the Supreme Court of Canada. At the Court of Appeal, there was a dissent. It goes to the Supreme Court. At the Supreme Court, they make a decision. Now, everyone thought that this gun would be excluded because of the racial profiling. So now they've even expanded on the racial profiling here. This person is just literally walking on the street. But because it was a gun at this point, the, the environment was not so conducive for you to be able to, dis, to, to leave the gun out. It wouldn't have happened that way. So we move then to Peel Law Association and Peters. Now I put this case here because it's a very interesting case. Uh, what happens in this case is that there is a, there's a lawyer's lounge in Peel. Peel region actually is where I sit. And at this time, I would have been, I would have been a judge now. Uh, <clears throat> so there's a lawyer's lounge that's there. All of us will congregate there in, in whatever time. Uh, there's like chairs, it's a lounge. You can put your, there's lockers in fact there. And mostly just lawyers, in fact, only lawyers go in there. This fellow here, Selwyn Peters is his name actually. So Peel Law Association and Peters, Peters' first name is Selwyn. And Selwyn has dreads. And so Selwyn is there with uh, an associate and they're sitting there talking. They're not, you know, they're not doing anything except talking amongst themselves. And the librarian comes up to them and says, what are you guys doing in here? And they're like, what do you mean, what are we doing here? Now, you have to keep in mind that inside there is a whole bunch of lawyers. Like, it's not just two or three people in there. There's like 30 people in there. Uh, and on any given day, you can, it can be crowded, especially if it's lunchtime. So what happens is she comes up to Selwyn and asks him, well, what are you doing here? Now, this lawyer, this librarian, is incredibly nice. Never had a problem with her before. Never. I, I know exactly who it was that came up to him. I've known her for years. She was always very helpful. But this is a person that she didn't know. So when she came up to him, she's asking, why are you here? Eventually, she kicks him out. Now, Selwyn, I don't think, tells her that he's a lawyer. Uh, I can't remember the fact scenario of that part, but I may have had it written here. Well, I say, the appellant who are black lawyers approached in a lawyer's lounge operated by the respondent, Peel Law Association, by the respondent, who aggressively asked them to produce identification to show that they were lawyers. She did not ask to see the identification of anyone else in the lounge and falsely stated, oops, uh, did not ask, and falsely stated that she knew that the other occupants of the lounge were lawyers. Now, that would have been her visual, right? She would already have known most of the people that are there, but she says, I knew that everyone else was lawyers. Uh, the appellants brought an application to the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario alleging the infringement of their rights. And they wanted equal treatment with respect to services, goods, and facilities without discrimination because of race or color. Tribunal found that they were sufficient facts to support a prima facie case discrimination and required the respondents to provide a valid explanation that showed the appellant's race and color were not factors. He found that the respondents had failed and it goes from there. So they drew inferences based on 
the fact that they were black. Jurians, now this is another interesting thing. Jurians is brown, he's South Asian. He's actually the first South Asian to sit on the Court of Appeal. Jurians comes from the, court of, from the Superior Court to the Court of Appeal, ends up sitting on this case. Uh, and he, sit, he sits on this case. He's not even, actually at this point, he's not even on the Court of Appeal. Or well, maybe he is, I guess, because it's, it's 2013 when it went up there. Jurians recognize the fact that when baseless or flawed suspicion occurs in a social context of stereotyping, the discrimination inquiry must look behind the stated reasons for the decision. The discrimination can lurk in the united, in the unstated assumptions of individuals wielding discretionary power. Nisaya Appeal Regional Police Services Board, HRTO, uh, police officers like all members of society develop unconscious stereotypes about racial groups and subconsciously act on those stereotypes during routine police investigation. So now the law has developed. We have kept it in a situation where they recognize how subconscious racism can find itself. They find it here. Uh, so Selwyn actually wins. And Selwyn's actually still practicing law now. Selwyn's a very interesting guy as well because when he was coming across the border some years earlier, before he was even in law school, he's coming across the border and he gets stopped by the customs officials. They don't give him a reason why they stop him. So then he sued them. He's not even a lawyer. He's not even in law school. He's not in anything. He's just like, you know what? You guys shouldn't have done that. So he sued them, the Canada Border Services, and he won. So here he is now. He's a lawyer. He's sitting inside the lawyer's lounge. And he's like, you can't just stop this. So then he sued them. And again, he's now able to rely on the law that we've seen before. Successful racial, racial profiling cases that have come since are all the ones that are here. Obviously, it started with RDS and has worked since. Remember, in RDS, though, nobody's saying racial profiling. We're not at that point. It takes a lot longer before we actually get to the point where we can say those things. So they talk about the indicia of profiling. Circumstantial evidence is in parks. The existence and extent of racial bias are not issues which can be established in a manner associated with the proof of adjudicated law facts. So I put this here because I also think this is something that still needs to be litigated. At some point, we have to realize that even though we don't know what the indicia are, how is it that you can, if, if, if race is difficult to prove, then should the onus be on the person that's alleging proof, or should it be on the one that's, that's the, uh, on the other side? I'll give you a better example. On a section eight, a section eight application is a reverse onus. The onus is then on the crown to disprove the search. Some would argue that this should be done the same way. That racial profiling should actually be a reverse onus. Instead of me proving that this person was in fact racially profiled, you have to disprove. So you're starting from the notion that they were racially profiled and then work against it. It's a difficult one. No one has brought that application yet, but it would be interesting if someone did. Because in reality, it's, it may be too difficult. In fact, Doherty says, it, it, you could be all of these facts or none of these facts. You just don't know. So if you think that you're going to ask someone if they were racially profiling you and they say, actually, I was. Thank you for asking me that, counsel. You know I would never answer that when you're cross-examining me. And you would agree you were racial profiling, weren't you, officer? No. No, I wasn't. You know I would give you that answer. So it's very difficult for you to be able to prove that 
from somebody else. So then it may be that it has to be disproved by the state that has more of the, um, more of, at their disposal in terms of being able to argue things or more resources. Yeah. Um, so Peart and Peel, is that the the drivers? Yeah, yeah. There's uh, the two drivers. Well, there's a driver and passenger, both black. Mm -hmm. um, so the case came out of our office. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, no, you can say the facts. <laughs> no, no, you can say the facts. Well, I can't wait till you figure it out because <laughs> this is the room that's going to do that. Yeah. So Peart uh, is a, and I think part of the problem with Peart was that it came in a, a civil context, right? It wasn't actually a criminal case. So, um, and these were these uh, two young men, they were driving and the person at the time that was representing them was a guy named Osborne Barnwell. And Osborne Barnwell wanted to bring this racial profiling argument. So at that time, Barnwell had now become a partner at our firm, so it was Hinkson, Satchik, McLeod, and Barnwell. The cross-examinations were done by a criminal lawyer who was Nadir Satchik. And so Satchik does the cross-examinations of the officers, but the problem is that the standard is uh, different than it is in a criminal case. Um, <clears throat> so it was difficult because then disclosure is different, and all of those things sort of weighed in, in the balance in order to determine whether or not, and then on top of that, they were in a civil they were in the civil sort of trenches, right, where it was very difficult for them to get the sort of criminal things that they wanted. That case was uh, unfortunate. And then also on top of that, one of the things that many of these people had the benefit of was legal aid. So in the, in the criminal context, you could have legal aid. In the civil context, we couldn't. So there's only so much that they could actually fight before they were like, you know what, we're done. We don't have enough. We, we've run out of money. Um, I think the, the notion of running it as a reverse onus is one that um, 
someone in this class will have to do. Yeah, go ahead, Stefan. On that very case, when you were working it, um, Andrew tried to flip the onus. Were, were the officers able to, like, on their side, talk about the presumption of innocence? Like, that, that's something that I'm just kind of like seeing going in circles in my head. Like, obviously, the accused in a criminal case is the presumption of innocence. But if the accused all of a sudden is saying that the officers are committing um, racial profiling, is there then like a presumption of innocence for the officers that then just kind of like bounces back and forth until the U.S. Uh, can't be met? Um, I don't know. I, I think, well, so this one here, we, we were, Osborne was doing it with Nadir. Um, so you've got this presumption um, of innocence. And as you say, does that, does that buck up against the racial profiling as a reverse onus? Is that what you're saying? Well, like, is there a presumption of innocence in the sense that like, the officers are presumed that they don't? Oh, I see. Because now they're, it's, now they're now sitting they're on the because the standard was so different on the bounds of probabilities, and now it's just uh, it's on the issue of racial profiling all on its own. Yeah. I don't think the presumption stayed there. Noah? Yeah, I feel like the, if you reverse the onus, then I feel like that strengthens the presumption of innocence. So it's a factor that you know, like the strengthens the presumption of innocence because the police officer has to establish evidence for why they were not right. acting a certain way. So I, I don't see it in it will if you do it that way, but it, it, it helps if it's in a criminal context as opposed to civil. So I agree with you, AJ. I was just going to say, obviously, I remember reading about the case from evidence last semester, and I, from what I remember, the Ontario Court of Appeal, one of their reasons for not putting in the reverse onus was that, you know, we just don't have enough, you know, data to support the fact that police officers can, can be racist and will commit racial profiling. And I wonder now if a similar situation arose, now that there is this entire body of law that you've gone through uh, yes. about racial profiling, um, and the courts have taken judicial notice of it, um, whether you know, the court would be inclined to look at it. And so I think they might, right? It may, it may very well be that they're able to do that. If they're able to see now that there is a... But I think it, it takes then now to put it in context why is it that a Section 8 violation is a reverse onus? Right. Once you sort of, sort of hammer down on that principle, then now every principle after that, you can either mirror it as you're going along with racial profiling, right? So a, a search is someone's sacred home. It's their person. Uh, so the court says if that's the case and it's so intimate to the person, it has to be reverse onus because of, of the challenges that come if we don't do that. Racial profiling could very well be the same way. But to this point, no one has found it, and I think maybe you guys will. Convergence of personal attributes with stereotypes, where an individual's personal characteristics, such as their race, age, religion, appearance, converge uh, with prevalent stereotypes, the potential of the police engaging in discriminatory discrimination increases. It's important in this situation for the judge to examine closely the reasons for the police misconduct. So R.V. Smith. Uh, Wilson held that the accused was subject to pretext highway traffic tax stop that was racially motivated. Do you remember what year Peart came out? It was the early 2000s. Right. So, um, and I'm saying that because it would, I wouldn't, I mean, I was a defense lawyer at the time. So if you look here, the pretext highway traffic tax stop, that was almost a guise that they used for, for, um, uh, for Peart. There was at one point a suggestion that what we should be doing as criminal lawyers is, is getting the 
if we're in criminal court and a judge says that there's a Section 8 violation, we should be able to take that Section 8 violation to a civil context, and all we should be able to argue now is the, is the facts with respect to quantum, because it's res judicata. We would argue then that the judge, our judgment has already been made on the Section 8. If the Section 8's already been made and the court's already found, then why would we relitigate that part? Let's just go to quantum. I wish we had argued that, but I never got a chance to. But I still think it's a good one to argue. <coughs> but here, excuse me, in Smith now, we are talking about the pretext highway traffic act stops. If we had known this back at, um, with Peart, we may very well have had a different outcome. But we, didn't, we weren't at this point. The law still had not gotten there yet. Con. Uh, the Ontario Court of Appeal has held that where the circumstances relating to a stop correspond to the phenomenon of racial profiling provide a basis for the court to infer that the police officer is lying about why he or she singled out the accused person for attention. The record is that then capable of supporting a finding that the stop was based on racial profiling. So if I go back here, it's 2009, so 2003. And so Khan comes in 2004. And so we're starting to see that the verbiage around racial profiling is now becoming, we're, we're not, uh, they're not losing it. They're, they're now enhancing it. This is at Marley, right? So he's on Marley, which is an area in, in Toronto, and he's just on that street on a Monday. But look at the time, it's just, it's noon. It's like just the middle of the day. So before, one of the contexts were that it was late at night. So now this is the middle of the day. So that's why they're saying context around times of stops don't necessarily matter. Police failure to follow well-settled law, failure by the police to follow well-settled legal principle pronouncements should attract greater scrutiny or whether it is due to racial bias. So now we're trying to find the things that can point towards racial bias if you're not following all of the, the appropriate things. So for instance, a police officer that's following a car is not just supposed to type in the license plate, and then find out if that person has any breaches or ever been in trouble. That's actually not the law. You're supposed to, to if, unless there's some reason that you've seen that alerts you for that movement, you don't just punch in the license plate to see if that person's on bail or who they are or who's driving the car. But many times that Highway Traffic Act stop is the pretext to then the stop. Charges look behind why. Defense counsel often hear the following complaints from their clients. Failure to inform an individual of his or her Section 10B charter rights to retain and instruct counsel at the outset of investigation. So now, and look how early this is. This is Subaru. And Subaru is talking about the fact that you have to be able to give someone their 10B rights. But now people on arrest aren't even getting that. So they're complaining. They're saying, look, they didn't even tell me I had the rights to, to, to get counsel or things of that sort. Section 10B of the Charter is violated when the accused is not given their rights to, to retain and instruct counsel. When investigating racialized youth, police often fail to respect that they are entitled to enhanced procedures. So now a young person, it's actually an even different uh, threshold test when you're dealing with them. It's not the same as an adult. There's more things that you've got to tell them, but many times police officers don't do that. So the escalating number of rights or violations. Now, some of these things are important because we know how high the incarceration rate is for persons that are racialized. 
We know how many people have been going to jail. We know how many people are pleading guilty to offenses. And now we recognize that the first person that they may very well come in is law enforcement. If law enforcement doesn't have the discretion needed to be able to make sure and fetter out, hey, you have the right to remain silent. Hey, I've got to explain this to you. Hey, I'm not supposed to do these highway traffic act stops. Then there's a strong likelihood that that person may not get bail. Because we realize that based on the numbers that we saw, they're not going to get bail. And then we also recognize in some of the other reports, especially the Cole Gittins report, that persons that are in jail have a stronger likelihood to plead guilty because they may get time served, they may get out, they've been in for a long time. It's going to take a long time before I have my trial. So then all of a sudden we start to have this, this cascading negative impact on individuals solely because they are becoming so, in, uh, in their, their interaction with the criminal justice system is so quick. We also saw when we were looking at education how high the suspension rates were. So then you also have this idea that if 31% was the suspension rate for, for persons that are only 4% of the population in those schools, then why again are we seeing that dichotomy? It's for the same reasons that why we're seeing here. Uh, the court should be wary of police officers relying on indicia to detain, arrest, search, or, uh, or use of force not contained in their notes and expressed for the first time at trial. So again, you have a police officer said, well, that wasn't in my notes, but that's actually what happened. Uh, when confronted with these types of additions, trial judges should be willing to assess if the police officer's after-the-fact justification is a cover-up for racial bias. It's reasonable to expect that an officer will, not, will note significant factors which informed his decision to detain an individual. A failure to do this detracts from the reliability of a professional witness, witness's evidence. Again, if it's not there, you're going to ask yourself, why is that not there? This would have been important. If it's important and it's not in your notes, how can we rely on that knowing that this was something that you said was important, but yet it's not there? Dubious discretionary. These are all sort of, again, factors that you look at around racial profiling, why it's happening. Courts should be skeptical of police officer reliance on dubious indicators of criminality. Um, R.V. Simpson, subjectively based assessments can be too easily mass discriminatory conduct. When police are not investigating a reported crime, but rather relying on discretion, then, then there is a heightened chance of influence or bias. So in other words, I'm somewhere, I'm just in the neighborhood. And this is why there was a problem that um, some neighborhoods had with particular um, there were, uh, I can't remember what they used to call them. They would be, they would be put into, well, oh, look, here's the best example. At Regent Park, there's a police station that used to be in there. So 51 Division was in Regent Park. Could you imagine a police station literally in where you live? That's where it was. So they could be just walking around and say, you know, well, hey, we're just stopping you for, just want to ask you a couple questions. And, for, but these are dubious reasons. These, these reasons now, they're asking us as judges to be able to look at them and say, you know, these are not appropriate. These, this is window dressing for something else. Um, worthy of scrutiny, driving an expensive car, clothing, baggy hats, over-reliance. So this was a list that was given to us in, um, in D. Brown. So when they were talking about these things, these are the things that you should look at to see whether or not there's bias. Did they have a cell phone? Uh, the accused hands were in his pocket, or he was walking a certain way. Like, so when you look at Grant, the, the officers say he was just walking, but they started using this term in, called blading to one side. 
You're like, what's blading? Well, the, uh, they were walking, but we could see that they were blading to one side. It's like, well, what's blading? What is that? But that was enough for them to stop and ask questions. Or they were fidgeting. Uh, it's always interesting to me that you know, when a car gets stopped, um, the first thing the person in the car wants to do is fidget. When you got police officers with guns that are coming to your car, the last thing you want to do is fidget. But there's all this fidgeting. There's all these things that are happening. So you have to start to look, again, past the words to what it is that they're actually saying. Um, these are other factors that we can look at. And then factors continued. So from here, we go to the last area, which is sentencing. Sentencing is now where you now can take some of this information and you can use it for the purposes of sentencing. So Hamilton and Mason, so when you see the case of, um, uh, what's the case we were talking about? I was talking to someone about Morris. Morris is that case that comes out that was argued by Faisal Mirza. So Faisal Mirza and I argue R.V. Hamilton. And Hamilton becomes the, the case that we then start to anchor other sentencing cases on. So this was a sentencing case. So it's no wonder that when Faisal, when I've now been called to the bench, Faisal is still defense counsel. And what Faisal does is he creates this new assessment tool that people can use for culturally assessments. It actually comes from Faisal. Faisal was just appointed as a judge about a month ago or two months ago, and now he sits in Brampton as well. So here we have uh, a sentencing judge, however, required to take into account all factors that are germane to the gravity of the offense. That inquiry can encompass systemic racial and gender bias. So now I'm arguing this, but now I'm adding on to it because now I've added gender bias. So gender bias wasn't there before. But now this was a case of two women. And so it's actually two cases. It's Spencer and Hamilton. Or Spencer, Hamilton, and Mason. I can't, there's like a few names. But what they did was the Court of Appeal took all of them together and allowed us to argue it all at the same time. So the main argument was Hamilton and Mason. So that's usually how we refer to it. But these were two women that were coming in from Jamaica and they, were, they had drugs secreted on them. So when they had the drugs that were secreted on them, um, we made the argument that they should not, the judge basically on his own motion, as, which is what the Court of Appeals said, uh, indicated that they should not have received a, a less than three year sentence. What the judge said was based on what he's seen, his level of experience, so it's similar to what Noah said, this judge basically on his own anecdotal evidence, Justice Hill, who's a, very, very good judge. Um, he started bringing out things that the lawyers had not seen. And then those lawyers got the picture, the light went off, and then they started arguing this. But they hadn't, it wasn't their motion, it was a judge's motion. We were now trying to argue that even though it was a judge's motion, he was right. We ultimately were not successful because the court said, even though we agree with what you're saying, Justice Hill should never have brought the argument on his own. A judge is not able to do that. So we then brought our argument, though, talking about gender bias. Uh, those factors include any explanation for the offender's commission of the crime in racial and gender bias suffered by the offender helps explain why the offender committed the crime. So now let's take it out of this for a moment and look at the case for prostitution. In prostitution, it used to be that when there was a prostitution case, the, they used to call them the John. The John would get arrested for prostitution. 
and the, the prostitute would get arrested for soliciting prostitution. Both would be arrested at the same time. Then what happened is there was an argument that was brought that said you shouldn't arrest the woman or the prostitute. The reason why you shouldn't arrest them is because of this background, that these are, you know, these, these are persons that are in this system for a variety of reasons. And the reasons why they're here should not be um, compounded by the fact that they're doing this. They're doing this not because they want to. They're doing this because they have to. And so Himmel, who was a judge, a woman, uh, whose husband is also a judge, Himmel makes the decision that, you know what? We're not going to make it a crime anymore to be a prostitute. So now, if you are actually in a case and, and uh, there is the man and the woman and the woman is a prostitute, they will arrest the man and let the prostitute go. Because when you look at the background, you would basically be harming that person again. Now, that comes after Hamilton and Mason. But Hamilton and Mason uses the same argument, which is what Hill was saying, is that these persons that are doing this, these quote-unquote mules, are persons that are of low economic stature. They are persons that are not able to sustain themselves, and they're getting, you know, $200 or $300 to maybe bring up thousands of dollars worth of cocaine, but they're actually doing this because they have to. So when we sometimes look at, again, critical race theory, keep the understanding that the way that you unpack something, the way that you look at things in whatever genre of, of law you intend to go into, is that the context must be important. So it was very interesting when we brought, brought this argument, but it was one that I think the court would have accepted had it not been for the fact that Hill was the one that brought the decision forward. Um, so these are simply what's identified in 718 of the criminal code, uh, the things that you look at. Sentencing principles are there. All they stay the same. Now you see E. Um, right, so those are all there. The search of a, for a just sanction which reflects a proper blending of the objectives of sentencing. So what happens out of this is now there's another four-way. And the four-way starts to move from just the regular sentencing principles to determine whether or not we can add to those based on the background of the person. Uh, a sentence should be similar to the sentence imposed on others. Uh, consecutive sentences are imposed. It talks about all of the sanctions that are there. Uh, African Canadians continue to struggle with having the judiciary consider systemic and background discrimination factors as a fundamental principle of sentencing. In IP lay, the Supreme Court recognized that in order for a sentencing judge to determine a proportionate sentence, it is essential that they consider all relevant contextual factors, and in particular, whether systemic discrimination contributed to the offender's conduct, just sanctions are those that do not operate in a discriminatory manner. We start looking at those. Now, I think I put this for a reason. I want to know your thoughts. <laughs> Hence why I said your thoughts at the front. While we do not agree that evidence of the impact of anti-black racism on an offender can diminish the seriousness of the offense, or that systemic inequalities diminish the court's authority, or indeed its obligation to denounce serious criminal conduct, we do not accept that evidence of anti-black racism and its impact on the specific offender can be an important consideration when determining the appropriate sentence. So I'm going to ask you, what do you think about this? Now you're unpacking it. I'm going to go to my newly found Cree friend, Noah, and ask him as well what he thinks. 
But I'm going to say, when you look at this, now through the lens of all the things that we've said before, what stands out to you? Any hands? It could be anything that stands out to you. All right, the first thing that, yep, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Yes. That sticks out to me as well. Anyone else? Yeah? Um, it says it can be an important consideration where considering what we're talking about, it should be a consideration um, versus can be an important Okay. Let's go with that. Stefan, I'm going to come to you. Just Stefan. I see the wording of court's authority and can't help but think that court also has responsibility. Yes. Um, so it's more, more than just an authority to punish, but has a responsibility to promote greater justice in the future. Okay, yes. Um, just its impact on the specific offender um, is noted as something you have to show. All right, so look, I'm going to show you the next slide. So my problem with this is that we do not agree that the evidence of the impact of anti-black racism on an offender can diminish the seriousness of the offense. But then we do accept that the evidence of anti-black racism and its impact on the specific offender can be an important consideration. What? I'm confused. Because you do not agree with this. But yet we do accept. You know why this doesn't make any sense? Go ahead, Noah. Well, I think it does make sense. OK. And that when you balance sentencing, you're, you're balancing the seriousness of the offense with the moral blameworthiness of the individual. So say, say that again. You balance, sentencing is determined by balancing the seriousness of the offense with the moral blameworthiness of the, of the sentenced person of the conviction. So, so it's balancing the moral bl uh, blameworthiness, the blameworthiness with, the offense. with the seriousness of the offense. OK, yes. And so it can go towards reducing the moral blameworthiness of a person. Similar, that's, the, that's what the Gladwell principles are. But it doesn't make sense that you have systemic factors diminish the severity of murder or the severity of like, sexually assaulting a person like that. The seriousness of those offenses like, are distinct from the moral culpa culpability, the blameworthiness of a certain individual. But we have an objective threshold like, to measure the seriousness of certain crimes, like there are certain more heinous crimes, and I think that's what they're identifying in that, is that you can compartmentalize the moral worthiness of an individual with the, the moral, the morality of the certain crime. So I think that's all they're getting at, is there, and that makes, that's logical sense, that makes logical sense. So we do accept that evidence of anti-black racism and its impact on the specific offender can be an important consideration when determining the appropriate sentence, but we don't agree that the evidence of the impact of anti-black racism. So they agree that the evidence of anti-black racism, but then they don't agree that the impact of anti-black racism. So we agree that there's evidence, but we don't agree with its impact. Can diminish the seriousness of the offense? So if we look at uh, Lavallee, serious offense, we look at the fact that they're, they, the background of the individual is murder. And yet, the, the, they take into consideration the conduct of the individual, what had taken place before, in order for them to determine what the outcome should be. 
Yeah. Yeah. I just I don't mean to be pedantic, but no, no, I'm okay to be that way. You know that the sentencing is determined by the seriousness of the offense with the moral blameworthiness of an individual. Like you have to calculus that you input that you input to determine the sentence. And so, see there, that's my problem. My problem is I don't believe it. See, because I can't. If I believe it, then it, then I'll believe this. So then, sometimes my starting point can't be what they told me. It has to be what I think. And so that's the hard part, especially in, in law, right? Because we are, so, we are so governed by the law that sometimes it takes away our ability to be, uh, to think about it differently. So I agree, that is in fact the law. The law is as you've stated it. But if I think that way, then I may never move past it. I may never, I may, I may be stuck in that square and never able to get out. So when I see this, because of the way that I, my, the way that I, I deconstruct, I, it doesn't matter who told me it, I still think it's wrong. But I don't know if that's the way that I'm, so that's why I asked your thoughts, because this is the way that I think. But the way that I think may not necessarily be the right way for you. It's the right way for me. But it may not necessarily be the right way for you. So when you look at this, do you simply say, you know what, that's fine, okay, I'll take it. Or is there something here that you would say, you know what, I think I would, I would probably argue more. Yeah, go ahead, AJ. I mean, the argument I would make with respect to what Noah said is that um, like moral blameworthiness also comes in at the point where we're determining guilt or innocence. Like you just said with Lavalet, that was, the case of self-defense, the reason why there is a defense of self-defense is yes. because if someone's defending themselves from violence, then it's not, then they're not morally blameworthy mm -hmm. for, um, you know, responding to people's force. Or like the defense of giraffes, if you're starving in the woods and you break into someone's cabin in order to survive, <coughs> then you're not going to be committing a crime. Um, and so when you see it, a distinction like this being made here, um, it, it doesn't really take that into account that, in, you know, in, in some cases we're saying, yes, if someone's not morally blameworthy, then they, you know, should uh, be found guilty. But in this circumstance, we're saying, well, they might have been less blameworthy than other people, but we're still going to find them guilty and just knock a few years off the end of the sentence. Right. You go ahead, Stefan. So, uh, as it is plainly written, I think I am leaning towards your sentiments towards it. But I think what makes it difficult is that like, the word seriousness just isn't like specific enough in right. part of the sentence. Uh -huh. uh, like, I think there's seriousness of conduct and then there's also seriousness of impact. And you know, in, in what Noah's saying is murder is heinous because someone dies. Like that the, the impact will always be incredibly serious in murder. But the seriousness of the conduct, that that might Mm -hmm. being able to be a little bit more of a spectrum based on social determinants. There you go. Yeah. So, like, I, I agree with that view, and I'm also leaning towards your description of it, but this passage makes more sense to me when I read it as sort of two distinct... Sentences. Um, yeah, two distinct segments where the first part where they're saying we do not agree is almost leaning towards and referencing the victims of crime, and the second part is then acknowledging the person who committed the crime and the accused 
and sort of the systemic factors that are impacting them. Mm -hmm. But they're not detaching the fact that there is a victim that can't be ignored even when you are dealing with systemic anti-black racism. Okay. Um, I don't know, I'm kind of wondering if the first part of the sentence is um, trying to trying to stray away from maybe the bigotry of low expectations and thinking that, okay, if we start to consider these factors, then we might start to think, or just because you're BIPOC, like black indigenous, um, you're more likely to commit crimes because of the context, you know, like convoluting context uh, uh. in a way that's actually prejudiced. I wonder if you're trying to stray away from it, but I think then that also kind of misses the point. A lot of good context, and, and I think what you brought up with Mavale, I think about, I mean, my, my mind doesn't even go to like murder or this or that. Like, my mind is going to drugs, like, things in the hood, like, drugs are like, <laughs> So I think, I mean, we're, we're coming to the end of the class, so the key here is to be able to really look past the words. What I'm saying is that we should not always just inhale what we see or read and say, that's the God-given truth. That now that we have context, we should be able to critically analyze in order for us to either move things forward or say to ourselves, you know what, it's fine, I understand. Either way, we, can't, we should not be sitting as stagnant as we did before this class started. Now we should be able to look at things this way. All right, also. My question is, um, uh, <clears throat> are you, like, in, in, if you would conduct this analysis not using these words, would you, like, would you take into account uh, like anti-black racism on an offender in the, like, in the offense stage, like in the determining the mens rea, the so it would so it would depend on on what the case was. Um, if uh, the if I'm if it's a charter application and the the evidence is that the accused came out of their vehicle, saw the police officer, and started to run, then I may be able to use a different lens. If they said, "Hey, uh, this person ran," why did they run? They could have run for absolutely no reason. You know, I used to say that if I was, there was a point in my life where if I was driving my car and a police officer put their lights on behind me, I wouldn't stop until I got to a place where it was well lit. So I would literally keep driving. I would not stop. If it's the darker the place that I'm in, is the longer I'm going to drive till I get to somewhere. So now, uh, do I take that into consideration if it is that the, it's, uh, the offense is um, failure to stop, right? Or evading police or dangerous operation of a motor vehicle? So at, at what stage does it, does, it, um, does it start? So it depends on what, what the allegations are. It depends. I don't think you do it as of right. Uh, but I think you, you can start to look at things 
uh, from a different vantage point and say to yourself, you know what, that's something that I can, I can now attribute to uh, a past, a present, a context, where this person lives, what they're doing, uh, a bunch of things, right? So if someone runs but they, they were on bail and they shouldn't have been out at that time of night, that could be one reason. But the other reason could also be there are police officers and I was afraid of them. I don't know which one it is. So I think you can do it at that time. All right. Now, we, obviously, we're going to stop now. But do, are there any more questions? I'm sorry I couldn't have gone through everything. But there are a lot of things here. So, But um, <clears throat> are there any other questions that you may have? Yeah, go ahead. Um, this is a question I had before starting this lecture and coming here. But I know, like myself, and pretty much everyone else here would agree that what you've shown today and the systemic racism in our society is real and people experience it. It's a thing that we live with. But I know that there's been a lot of pushback by like, a lot of right-wing groups and individuals against critical race theory and teaching it. And I'm just curious as to why you think that, despite there's so much evidence showing that these problems exist, that people are still really argumentative against accepting it and dealing yeah. with it. Uh, you know what, I've, I actually do not know why either. It's, I've, now, I would say that it's, it's very much in the American context. I don't seem to see it as much here in Canada. Um, I don't presume to know much about how Americans do things. Uh, but I think, you know, it is, I think there's a healthy skepticism or maybe fear that comes as a result of uh, people using more than just uh, you know, I'll use it by analogy. There used to be rappers that used to come to my office when I was doing entertainment law, and they were terrible. They would rap cat, hat, rat, sat, mat, dat. Terrible. And so, but they thought they were rappers. And so, until someone else that would come in, like a guy Socrates or a Cardinal would come in, or, you know, other guys who could really rap. I think that what happens is, for critical race theory, they were getting, they thought that they were gonna get cat, hat, rat, mat, but instead they got a very succinct, critical analysis of how race intersects with poverty, with education, with finance, and then it broke it down in such a way that it became undeniable. Then once that undeniability was standing in front of them, it was difficult for them to knock it down. So then as opposed to knocking it down, they're asking that it not even start. And so ignorance becomes their best friend, right? Ignorance becomes the, the catalyst to say, why do this in the first place? It shouldn't be done. And I feel like there is this wave towards um, treating race that way. Where so now someone, you know, sometimes you'll see interviews and there'll be people that are for Trump and they will say these things that you're like, but that didn't even happen. Like, where did that come from? I think if people remain in that state, it allows other injustices to happen. And so I think that might be the pushback that I sense. Um, because on its face, there's, there's, this is also to break the burden to say, there's actually nothing wrong with this. This is, just a, this is actually it's just a critical assessment tool that is already used at just calling it now critical race theory because it actually finds its way rooted in race. But aside from that, there's nothing else about it that's, that's untoward. Obviously, there's still work to be done, um, specifically in the area of anti-black racism, but then in the you know, 
countless other ways that people face discrimination. Um, are you generally comfortable and like pleased with the state of the justice system at the moment? Um. I mean, look, I'm in the justice system, right? So um, I'm pleased with it in that there is at least these recognitions that we've seen over all of these cases. Um, I can't say that I'm displeased, but I, I think that there is, I'm, I'm happy with the idea that things are, get, are getting better. The hard part is that, you know, at some point, we get pulled off the street, so to speak, right? So where you had Faisal there, I was there, you had other persons that were pushing the litigation forward. Now we're not there anymore. And we've also learned from Hamilton and Mason that it can't be our, our motion. So as much as I might see a motion that can be made, I can't do anything about it unless someone makes it. Um, so then that's why I'm hard on you guys, because I'm like, look, you guys are... You guys got bright minds. You're supposed to be able to go out there and tell us what to do next. Um, because unless you see something different in whatever vehicle you're going to be in, we're going we're to stay where we are and not move. So we saw that for those 10 years or 15 years from, say, 93 uh, to Neuer in, 19, in 2015, and then and Morris that came, say, last year, there's been a, a big push. So I think... If I had to categorize, would I use the word happy? I would probably use the word content to say that, that, that where, where we are is, is a, I'm not mad at it, you know, put it that way. All right? Okay, you guys, we'll see you next week.